Have you recently purchased land only to find it nearly useless due to an overcrowding of trees? Is your visto obscured by blue spruce, white pine, birch, or ash? Are you in need of usable lumber in a short amount of time? If so, Zepho Beck is the arborist for you. Working with a preternatural skill granted him by powers unknown, Zepho can clear a five-yard swath of dense forest in mere minutes. Not only will he clear the requested area, but he will also neatly separate and stack like-sized branches, limbs, and trunks at no additional cost. Other tree-clearing services are slower, and insist on bringing a cadre of cheerleaders without whom they cannot swing their axe, and who likely come with their own additional costs. Don't go wasting those extra dollars on slower felling and increased yelling. Choose the Casterin man who gives a damn. Due to circumstances beyond his control, Zepho is only available once per month and utilizes a proprietary technique known only to him, which to keep secret is performed only at night. Zepho retains the right to refuse service based on factors including bark taste, age of trees, vital emanations, and more. Zepho Beck Arboreal Services. Use code FULLMOON to get 10% off your first cord of wood. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. Hi, I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 66 through 70 of Mason and Dixon. Hi, everyone. This is Will. And uh, long story short, the summary fairy didn't make it this week. And uh, we couldn't find a suitable replacement, so I I guess this is the this is our last resort. And this was planned as the last resort, but regardless, I'm reading it a few days after the fact. Anyway, our backup to the backup plan uh, is here. This is the uh, Wikipedia summary of Mason and Dixon chapters sixty six through. Sorry, episodes 66 through 70. The story carries into 1767, the surveyor's last year upon the line. First, Stig is bizarrely interrogated, and they hear ghosts in the wind before stumbling upon a barn-raising party, where characters including Armand and the duck resurface. Later, they arrive in Cumberland, where they meet Thomas Cressop and his family, hear stories of Cressop's exploits, and discover the town to be essentially lawless and somewhat reminiscent of the Wild West, complete with lone sheriff. Mason attempts to converse with the dog, who understands his questions but chooses to ignore them. Him, sorry. Episode 67 the party is joined by a delegation of Indians who partake in further discussion between the surveyors and Zhang regarding Jesuit methods of forming boundaries. The party is informed by the Indians they will soon reach a mystical warrior path they will not be allowed to cross, heralding the end of their journey. The Indians then regale them with tales of, a, of an area to the west filled with giant produce and containing a marijuana plant so large its branches support settlements 
perhaps as a coded effort to sell the surveyors some some of that latter substance. Eventually, they are taking that. Eventually, they are taken there and discover huge tomatoes and beets, which they reason cannot be God's work and must be the legacy of departed giants. Episode 68 Surveyors release most of the party, keeping their retinue of Indians and a few others, and continue west with the line. Taking a ferry across the Yogyogany River Lake. The Stygian captain of the ferry discusses with them the ghost fish in the river, his personal tragedies, America's propensity for war, and, to the dismay of the surveyors, points out and makes personal use of the correlation between war and business. The party then ponders what awaits them on the other side. Episode 69 the duck, its powers augmented by the negative energy of the line and obsessed with the decoy the party have created and placed upon it, becomes a permanent resident of it. Meanwhile, Dixon becomes obsessed with infinite westward expansion, and the party approaches the Monongahela River. Meanwhile, two axemen are killed by a falling tree. A wide variety of Indian nations take an interest in the party as it passes through the lands, where the surveyors eventually travel upon the warrior path amid feuding war parties. Lastly, Mason and Dixon share a dream, pursuing their path further west. Episode 70 The surveyors finish the line and, deciding to take their chances, leave the party and cross the warrior path in the dead of night to ride to the river all the while suffering from various ailments and illusions, as well as paranoia that they will encounter a similar fate to Edward Braddock. They reach the river and are discovered there by Indians familiar to them, who are returning from scalping Lord Lepton, proving it by displaying his rifle, complete with its menacing and possibly satanic insignia. The party then commences the return journey, heading west in heart amid hardship and difficult weather. All right, everybody. Enjoy the rest of the show. Let's start with our general view on these chapters. There's a real possibility that these are my favorite chapters in the book. You know, I'll have to make a a final decision once we actually complete it, but certainly um, just from a, a sheer volume of notes, anyway, in my commonplace book as we've gone through these, this one comprises the most pages that I've written down. So I, I love these chapters. I think these chapters are an excellent sort of um, capstone to a lot of what comes before it, even though the book itself isn't, isn't done with yet. You know, in these five chapters, they do finish the line, and they do reach what is effectively the end of modernity, or at least modern civilization as it was at the time in the world of the book, and all of the different thematic perspectives that Pinchon gives on that and on what the land beyond that is like is so rich with detail and intent and offers a lot to break down and talk about, which I'm sure we'll get into. But I think it is also some of the, the most beautiful writing from a standpoint of bringing his themes to a conclusion. And it, it really does 
make an impact on the reader, especially when they eventually turn around and decide that they're done and go back. Like I was, I was sad. Like I felt, I felt a profound sense of like, oh my God, they're finished with this, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're, they're going to be making their way back. And we don't know what's beyond the place where they, they stopped. We have like some, some inklings, but there's this profound sense of, um, the unfinished, but an unfinished that you're not supposed to see the actual end product of. And yeah, I, I think I think these five chapters are absolutely excellent. There is some, you know, meandering a little bit in a few of them, but overall I think that they are they're absolutely excellent. Some of the best in, in the book, certainly, if not the best five chapters as a whole. Yeah, I, w- I would have to agree. Um, it's this this section these five chapters i think really encapsulate a lot of uh his his strengths um and you know we get there's a a variety of his his writing techniques on display in here from his his beautiful writing in in describing wilderness and and scene setting and we get some of his uh his humor uh, that comes back in here. The the historical references are are plentiful here. We're getting a lot of um, the beginnings of closure. Um, so there is a sense of finality to it in that, you know, like you mentioned, that the, the line is done uh, despite, you know, people making, you know, making the line and us as readers wanting them to go on. But at the same time, understanding that, you know, there there can be severe implications for doing so. Um, and so there's that sort of, you know, you're hitting the climax of this story and you, you want it to keep pushing forward and, and to keep going with that, that sense of rising action. But it's, you know, th- that has to come to a point where it, it peaks and we have to, you know, start to, uh, slow it down and, and, and head towards a conclusion. And it's a, it creates a sort of bittersweet feeling, um, even though we're still, you know, a little, little less than a hundred pages away from the end of the book, but it it feels like the the kind of starting to say goodbye to everybody part of the of the book if that makes sense yeah and your your statement of rising action in particular brings up a a good point in that this book has essentially been 678 pages of rising action yeah just just (laughs) just constant like escalation and pushing forward and all of that so to to have the what is essentially the climax of the book happen you know, to your point, a little over a hundred pages away from its conclusion, um, is pretty unique. And for the, the, the climax to be not necessarily some like massive conflagration, but rather just, Oh, we can't keep, we can't keep going forward. Okay. We're going to turn around now. Like Mm. is, is pretty, pretty interesting just from a compositional standpoint. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, chapter chapter 66, I want to say, I think that's a chapter, features a bunch of really good prose. Uh, it's probably the most impressive uh, chapter prose-wise in the entire book, I would say, in terms of its kind of consistency with uh, how beautiful the language is. Uh, the part about the all the vegetables being so large and all that stuff, I really love that part. I mean, it definitely smacks of, like... Like, um... Native Americans or uh, natives in, of North America, you know, the whole El Dorado myth. Um, there's a few different things that kind of brings to mind. 
Uh, even, you know, the stuff from last week with the giant beaver and giant giant animals and all this different stuff, it kind of brings to mind that. Um, it is really interesting that there is such a long tangent about hemp and uh, the hemp plant being, like, a place where people, like, hang out on it because it's so big that you can climb it and, um, you know, parts of it start burning. Although we don't get the effects of, of that burning. Um, you know, it is, as I pointed out before, it is really interesting that a guy like Pynchon, who's a little bit older at this point, um, is still including uh, prolonged tangents about marijuana, uh, which definitely seems to be kind of um, <laughs> his calling card, at least in some ways. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, we've talked in the past few weeks about the, the fantasy aspect of this book, and that, that part of the of these chapters is definitely reminiscent of of a more uh of of the fantasy genre um we get some more stuff about talking dogs and how dogs have taken a vow of silence which is always interesting um there's a lot to like about these chapters even like the Cressap character he kind of reminded me of a few different like action movie heroes um from movies i've watched recently um yeah, I mean, th- these are some interesting chapters. I also think it's it's uh, notable that I want to say this is pretty much the first time in this book that we get a we get any prolonged um, encounters with Native Americans where they actually have dialogue, mm-hmm. and we actually get um, some descriptions of them. And you know, Mason and Dixon are actually directly interacting with Native Americans. I want to say that's the first time. That really happens in this book, and it is nice that you know Native Americans are given a voice in this book, uh, and that we do get a prolonged section of of that of those interactions. I also do. I also this was the last thing I'm going to say. I think, but um, it is nice that Mason and Dixon seem to be at least semi respectful of the wishes of the Native Americans and the traditions of the Native Americans. Um, you know whether or not that's historically based, I'm, I'm sure we'll probably never know. Um, but it is nice and a bit of a re- refreshing take on the whole thing because, you know, around this time, it's not like uh, views of, of Native Americans were super enlightened. It's not like, you know, white white settlers were were very enlightened people generally. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are some it, this these chapters are a little bit a little bit more complicated than last week's section um, and stuff like that. They are a little bit kind of harder to parse than some other parts, not as hard as like. 53, 54, 55, but still, mm-hmm. still a little bit difficult here and there. Um, but yeah, it definitely seems like Pynchon, I mean, he's already kind of hit his, hit his stride, uh, but it definitely seems like he's, these are some of the kind of most like technically impressive parts of the book. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree on that latitude. It might not be my favorite section of the book, but it's definitely, it's one of the, it's one of those parts of a book that, contains hallmarks it has the giant vegetables it has the crossing of the great warrior path it has essentially the 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 growing head of conflict between the the two main characters but it there isn't any real the interesting thing about this i find is that there isn't any real stake I mean, the stakes we're talking about here are massive. They are crossing this spiritual pathway that has sacred and material value. Uh, But otherwise, nothing... As far as we're concerned, there's nothing of stake here. 
you know, they could cross the, the Great Warrior Path. They could not cross the Great Warrior Path. They would probably get paid the same anyway. It really doesn't matter, except that, you know, alternatingly, they kind of just want to keep on going. And that's, that is, you know, the gist of it, I guess. And it's really, it's a lovely, <laughs> it's a lovely section because of that combination of true, truly virtuosic writing. And the slightly less experimental things that are happening here mm -hmm. compared to earlier in the book. And yet, you know, when I first read this, I was sweating, tense, anxious about whether they'd cross the path. Mm -hmm. You know, that it really is built as something that's important, even though we really have no clue why. We don't understand why. But the weight of it is still conveyed to us, and that that is an impressive trick that Pinchon's able to pull. And it, the fact that it's sandwiched between, like, these images of, oh, people living in a giant marijuana bush, and <laughs> some guy going crazy talking about a giant statue that nobody has ever seen following him. Like, he, he pulls off that degree of tension without stakes that anybody's aware of, and yet it doesn't feel like the world's about to come crashing down. Well, let's start with chapter 66. Um, I, so I, I kind of fell in love with this chapter right off the bat. And especially when the, uh, the appearance of the sort of um, doppelganger harbinger of, of, of evil that shows up um, and, and speaks to uh, Godred. Um, which I just want to, I just want to read those lines real quick. Cause I, I thought it was just absolutely, um, a, a great example of, of simple, but unsettling writing where you can, where he's doing a lot with, with not much. Um, it's just kind of, I'm starting in the middle of a sentence here, but, um, a strange small woman comes in unannounced only by her shadow. Sorry, announced only by her shadow, fair-haired, pale, with the most enormous eyes Gudrid had ever seen, and asks, what is your name? My name is Gudrid, replies Gudrid. What is your name? My name is Gudrid, she whispers, staring out of those eyes, and all at once there is a violent crash and the woman vanishes. Like, it's, it's a short section that's just kind of sandwiched in uh, into this page, but it, it, it's so evocative in its imagery. Um, and I think, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a prime example of, of his ability to do a lot with a little or in some, you know, and, and we're so used to people talking about how his, his prose is at its best when it's, you know, these really flowery and, and intricately put together uh, sentences and paragraphs. But I, I think he also shines uh, some of his best writing when it's just these kind of simple descriptions like this, that, that evoke such a powerful image. Yeah, completely. I, I you know, with no context as to who that individual is or, you know, them not appearing prior to this or whatever, just that, that one sentence you read out, it is inherently terrifying. And it is just as random to the reader as it is to, to Gudrid because of the fact that there's no really further explanation that either we or him gets. So it it's it's something that also... I think works so well because it seats you in the exact same position as the character that it's happening to, which is a, which is not always something that's possible for an author to do. Yeah. And it, you know, as I've mentioned last episode, I have a little bit more information 
about this this uh, subject matter just based on the fact that I read another book about it very recently, and it <laughs> it's kind of impressive how much it is um, not at all explained by having that context. I I will say <laughs> that I I have about as much context I think as there is to be had, and yeah, no, it 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 is exactly as abrupt and confusing as the way it's just dropped into Mason and Dixon. So it's pretty impressive use of mythology there. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, because I, I, you're referring to the ice shirt, I'm, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, um, yeah, that's kind of the impression I got when I was reading this, was like, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is there's some deeper Norse mythology that, that this touches on, um, so I'm, I'm curious. And I was actually genuinely wondering if that was also something that, that came up in the ice shirt, so that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, Gudrid and Carl Sefni are two of the major characters. Okay. And, uh, yeah, no, there's, it is it is just as random as it is in this book, so there's <laughs> nothing to inform anyone about, really. <laughs> so what we're saying is that the ice shirt is re- recommended reading for the, the second half of Mason Dixon. <laughs> well, yeah, and ironically... <laughs> Well, and speaking of of unsettling, um, I get or just the the concept of being unsettled, we have just after that, um, kind of towards the end of six thirty four, the the sort of episode that that occurs after this this scene with Gudrid, we have uh, Mason and Dixon both kind of discussing the things that they've seen that have that have unsettled them while they were on the line, but they're different things for for the both of them, which you know again hammers home this you know point of, of how different these two are but they're still you know they're experiencing the same things but taking them and and interpreting them a little bit differently you know where uh dixon was uh really kind of unsettled by the cave and the um uh, i'm sorry it was it was mason who was un, who's unsettled by the cave um and and it just really didn't have any impact on the other and then you know we switch that around and um you know we have things that are upsetting to Dixon, but not really so much to Mason. So it's, you know, even this far into the book, we're still seeing these, these disparities between these two, despite their, their inherent similarities, they're still very different. Yeah, true. And I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember if it was Luke or Will who mentioned it in, in their initial um, thoughts on the chapters, but as these chapters go on, the, the divide between them becomes a bit clearer. And I think it's interesting because when we think about, the positions that the two of them were in in the beginning of the book, they kind of switch places at this point in the narrative because, you know, Dixon was the one who seems to have an inherent, like, interest in things mystical or things, you know, potentially not of this world, given the fact that Mason decided to wind him up with that whole story about the 11 days and how interested he was in all the forbidden volumes that would have been in the Oxford libraries, whereas Mason in the beginning of the book, is yearning for something spiritual, but is less open to the ideas of, you know, ghosts or phantoms or anything like that. It is only as he has been exposed to repeated apparitions of his wife, to the theories that he is now being exposed to within uh, Feng Shui and everything Zhang is telling him, and sort of as he progresses further inland in America and experiences more and more strangeness that he becomes somebody yearning for 
a, a answer or yearning for a continuation of all of this. Whereas Dixon has now kind of decided to say, I don't think so. I think, I think, I think we're fine. I think we can kind of, we can kind of turn back. So it's not only, you know, them beginning to disagree with one another on, on just sort of the direction. And we have this little bit of a rift that's arriving in their relationship, but it's also them kind of swapping places with one another, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, what I what I love about that, um, especially in this chapter, is the way that Pynchon, right at the end, um, on page 645, yeah, has Mason describe that kind of division between them as you promise you're not you're not just trying to be encouraging in that cheery way you put off put on and off like a wig, and it's it's <laughs> it's very simple. As far as the, the the division between them, uh, Mason is a serious man. Uh, he he is somebody who, when he thinks about the idea of an afterlife, takes it very seriously. When he thinks about the idea of a, the stars and the value of his work, he takes it very seriously. Even though he rationally understands that all he's doing is looking through a telescope and doing some math, he knows he's not changing the world, but he takes it seriously because that's his general attitude on life. He takes it very seriously when he meets these speaking dogs because it is a serious change to his world. On the other hand, Dixon is playful with with himself and the world. He does not care quite so much because to him, oh, dogs can talk? Well, isn't that just isn't that just a great laugh? <laughs> and there's more to it than that. You know, he is more open-minded he has these mm -hmm. he, he he can fly or at least he could when he was younger he has the genuine insight into the mystical that mason seems to lack but he is also somebody who does not care because he doesn't take it seriously he just kind of wants to have a good time even though he's able to like balance a you know half ton tub on one axis like <laughs> It, it, they're, they're, that is the discrepancy between the two of them, mm -hmm. and it's it's very utterly laid out here. Yeah, yeah. It's Mason, I, and I think especially when you view this through the the kind of comedic aspects between them, Mason is the straight man in the story, and and Dixon is is his kind of foil. But um, the dynamic between them, you know, there's a lot more layers to it than just that. But it's you know. I, I, we've, we've talked about this, you know, so much throughout the, the episodes we've done on this book, but it, it really is such a great examination of, of the relationship between these two, because it's exploring their, their dynamic to such a deep level that so many other authors would really not take the time to get to. They would typically, I think a lot of, uh, especially a historical novel like this, um, I think a lot of other authors would tend to get lost in just writing the history and trying to tell the story and, and move the story and, and do whatever it takes to move the story. But with someone like with, with Pinchon's ability to write the way he does um, really takes the time to develop these men as characters mm -hmm. and to give them a, a life and to let them have these experiences and to let them grow with each other uh, in in such a an exceptional way that it adds so many other layers to to this story that just I, it, it's a major reason I tend to 
hide away from historical fiction uh, because it tends to lack that character dynamic that this book has. So that's also part of what's making it really hard to get to the end of this is, is I, a, I know how it ends and I know what happens. Um, but B it, I, I just want more of, of them. I just want more interactions between them. Yeah. Well, and I think another aspect within historical fiction is, you know, there is an easy temptation you can fall into to just rely on the fact that if the reader wants to, they can probably read biography after biography after biography of the people right. that, are, that are in these books. And so therefore, there is less of a, and I don't want to accuse anyone of necessarily being lazy, but just a, a less of a impetus, perhaps, to spend the time, you know, fleshing out those those characters. And as as you were talking um, just now, Cody, it really reminded me of my experience reading the book uh, Babel in Arcane History by R.F. Quang, which is mm-hmm. a good book. I highly recommend everyone read it. It's it isn't exactly historical fiction. It, it is it's fantasy, but it's set in a historical area during a historical period. She just tweaks aspects of it to to make it a more magical, realist thing. And it surrounds uh, four college students as they progress through three years of college together. And there is not the time given to develop those characters as people. We kind of get one or two sentences or a paragraph or two here and there. And then we're sort of told through direct exposition that they're becoming very close to one another, that they're becoming more friendly, that they're becoming, you know, very attached to one another. But you don't actually watch that grow organically right. through the dialogue and through the events that are happening. And that book is is 545 pages or something like that. So it's it's, you know, about 100 and 50 or 200 pages less than Mason and Dixon, but the the actual quantity of time given here I think doesn't doesn't match up to 200 pages of character building exactly. It is it is mm. done as the narrative progresses. And so you have all of these you know examples even from outside of historical fiction that still don't necessarily take the exact same approach in, in accomplishing that. And so it speaks to just not only his ability to develop characters, but his his ability to to write them. Because at the end of the day, we we know very little about Mason and Dixon. We know like some some broad historical sketches, but they're they're known really only for for having their names on this thing, and that's kind of it. So he was still given free reign to really figure out a lot of how those characters were going to be, and he chose to do so, which is you know just incredibly commendable for for what this book represents. Yeah, I, I get I get the sense that a lot of those authors, and uh, maybe not the case with Babel, which I have not read, but the way you describe it, it sounds like maybe it's an exception to this. Um, but in general, you know, it seems like historical fiction authors are stuck between, you know, choosing to be historically accurate and writing a, an exciting story. Mm-hmm. And unless you do something as, uh, you know formally epic as mason and dixon something as broad and experimental and about the nature of storytelling and history you're just not going to have the same same latitude when you're writing about a real person that that pynchon kind of tricks us into letting him do yeah very true which i mean just brings up the the reality that a portion of the themes here is how whether or not we can trust history and who gets to tell it. So even 
even us giving him latitude to do that, to, to use her phrasing, still supports part of the idea of why he's writing the book in the first place from a thematic perspective, which, again, speaks to his brilliance as a, as a composer of these works. And so uh, another uh, a large part, I think, of, of this story um, concerns the, um, the, the westward movement across America and the, the, the impact that that had. Um, both on a on a physical level and in, in terms of the the impact that it had to the environment, which we we see uh, really explicitly discussed at the beginning of chapter seventy, um, but also there's you know as, as was mentioned in the in the earlier part of the episode, there's a sort of um, unknown element of of what lies beyond the the river that they get to. Um, I, f- I forget the name off the top of my head. Um, but there, there's a sort of a, a sense of lingering danger if, if you move beyond that. And even though, you know, Dixon at first is, comes across as, you know, we, we need to respect the natives position on this and not go past where they're telling us not to go. Eventually, even he gets to the, you know, he reverses course on that and changes his mind. Um, I, I, I take it, you know, that, that sort of, invisible delineation from where they are to going further west it, it, there's a sense of you know there's a foreboding evil that exists out there that they've already pushed a little bit into it by just getting to where they are currently but to go any further in that would just be a, a sort of descent into a, a hellscape almost of of you know whatever evil exists out in in that part of the wilderness and i'm, I'm curious if y'all came away with the same kind of feeling from that I don't know if I would say that I came away with a feeling of it as a hellscape necessarily, um, but you are right in that they are progressing towards something. And what I, I was really struck by over the course of these chapters, and not just 66, so, you know, in what I'm about to say kind of gets into the next chapters as well, is that there are a lot of parallels between these chapters and the nation of Israel coming out of the desert. Uh, after leaving Egypt and going into the promised land where they spend, you know, 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, but then they eventually kind of get to the border of the promised land and they send scouts into the promised land and the scouts come back and they tell them that it's a land filled with giant crops, just huge fruits and vegetables. One of the descriptions is is a, a single vine of grapes has to be carried by two men, like on a pole. And it's also equally filled with with men who are giants and from a standpoint of his like historicity looking beyond just the bible to that area prior to the establishment of the kingdom of israel as a formalized nation there was a lot of internecine warfare bloodshed and slavery going on between different tribes of people that were in that land at the time there's no proof that they were obviously giant or that the, their crops are huge or anything like that. But stretching back to, you know, Abrahamic days, there was a lot of violence going on there. And we've seen time and time again over the course of Mason and Dixon, America being likened to something Edenic or something, you know, like a, like a continent of paradise. And yet at the same time, like we talked about extensively in the last five chapters, there it is a land that where slavery is old upon its shores. To go back to Luke's favorite quote from last from last episode, there's you know a, a great history of violence and bloodshed from multiple cultures that have ended up on the shores prior to Mason and Dixon's arrival. And 
what they're stepping out of and potentially into by crossing these lines is out of modernity and out of civilization and out of where they are familiar and into something that is essentially pre-modern and it comes with the warning that time functions differently in these areas and so there is a suggestion almost that they are stepping from the modern civilization they're they're in out of that into not just the wilderness but potentially literally something in the past because there's all these allusions to time functioning differently there's all these different sort of strange things going on that we'll get to as far as you know one of my favorite section quotes from this section that the the intersection of of i forgot the exact wording of it but savagery and 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 civilization or whatever pinchon says so i i saw it as a lot of pinchon getting away from the like violence and inherent structure of modern civilization at the time to something else that is wholly unknown and that warning that they get saying that you know you've gone too far west you are you're you're no longer going to be protected speaks to the idea that what it is that they were doing in mapping the line what it is that they were doing in drawing this 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 scar upon the land for whoever it is that required it of them which we get an answer to but also not really an answer to in these five chapters is completed and so their their sort of destiny so to speak has has now come to fruition anything they do beyond now has no promise of protection there is no further predestination for their events in america they're done and so it's i think it's something more of the unknown that speaks to the potential paradise of of un you know un divided land and on you know unmitigated just sort of wilderness that pinchon has been working towards over the course of this novel so that's sort of how i see it if that makes sense as opposed to to potentially a descent into hell yeah that's definitely more along the lines of how i how i read it i i see it a lot as a sort of coming together of these ideas of mm-hmm discovery as undermining the spiritual aspect of things kind of in a in a in a kind of a a a world spanning equivalent of you can dissect a joke like a frog but it won't croak anymore yep basically the idea that you know mason and dixon are going through and mapping and establishing human power and measurement in this place that has not been measured or known in a sense and so by doing that they are taking away this sense of mystery that sense of mystery which causes people to come away with such crazy ideas as giant vegetables and giant people and golems that follow poets that there's some sort of there's some some je ne sais quoi that if you do say it, if you do phrase it, it does destroy the essence. Yeah, there's some sort of spiritual death that comes as a result of that. Yeah, it's, it's, you know they're they're measuring they're they're measuring the electron, and they can only find out the the direction of travel or the rate of travel. They can't find out anything else. Well, and then we get I I didn't. 
I guess I might have tracked this and I just didn't let myself track it until I went on and looked on the the wiki. Um, it seems to be implied that uh, Sarpazo ends up being one of the co-founders of Disney World when he goes to Florida, <laughs> uh, which I thought was okay, interesting. Yeah. And and brings back the Cobra uh, brain pearl that we were stuck on uh, a while, but I don't remember how many episodes ago that was, but it brings that back into, into context. And um, yeah, I, re- I remember reading that and I was like, Florida, what the hell? Like, why is that mentioned? And I was kind of stewing on it. And uh, you know, the, the, what is it? Jesuit, Jesuit pleasure garden yeah. of dimensions unlimited by neighboring parcels. Um, and I, yeah, when I was just cruising through the, the wiki, I, they mentioned Disney world. I was like, okay, so that's, that's what he's doing with his time, I guess. It's interesting and fitting, I guess. Which, honestly, I would not be shocked if there's someone or multiple someones on the internet claiming that, you know, Disney World has some sort of weird Jesuit conspiracy to it. Oh, or, I would not be surprised at all. You know, yeah, like a cultist nature or whatever. Like, there was a movie um, that I wish I could remember the name of where this guy, he made a horror movie that he filmed entirely guerrilla style within Disney World. And there was a certain sub subsect of people that claimed that he was actually exposing the satanic like origins and like mysteries behind Disney World. And then it's a miracle he made it out alive and everything. So I I love that that is included here in a book published in 1997, that this man who is ardently evil and certainly represents (laughs) corruption uh and and abuse in in many forms from an institutional level is now involved in the founding of disney world <laughs> yeah is is i i took that as i did i did not realize the disney world connection but it's it's plainly there um but is, is it something along the lines of um as, as luke is referring to continually the 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 sense of people being their principles being undermined by thrills and entertainment in the same way that Dixon's uh, moral righteousness has been eroded by uh, exposure. Is is that what Zarpazo's done? He's essentially been trapped by his own, uh, his own vices. Well, I think the interesting inclusion there is that it's a, it's not just a pleasure garden. It's a Jesuit pleasure garden, which could you know, speak to the idea that institutions purposely create uh, places of entertainment and pleasure to to erode people, like a real bread and circuses thing. Uh-huh. That was what I sort of came away from it with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't pick up on the Disney connection either, but I, I do think that that's both funny and, and po- like quite possibly in there. Well, and we also get Right after that, um, the return of everyone's favorite duck, um, who I, I think I want to get uh, more of Luke's insight on this because, you know, uh, I forget now how long ago. Well, I guess it was when we first talked about the duck with in chapter like, what, 53, somewhere around there, um, where, where Luke had presented the idea of the duck being a golem. Um, and it's, you know, we're at the point now where the duck is essentially this, this sort of supernatural entity that is, is in and out of time and, and seems to exist on a different plane than, um, than the rest of us. And, um, 
eventually ends up, you know, a little bit later on, uh, getting, they, they try to fool it with a, a wooden mock-up that, um, uh, why can't I think of his name? Uh, carves up Tom Hines. That's who, um, but, uh, given that this is, um, another appearance of the duck Luke, i was i was curious if you if you had anything to sort of add to your um your initial theory on on it on her um yeah it is interesting that the duck seems i think the duck quotes Valken, 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 um there's a french quote in there cuz it is interesting to me that the man who created the duck um is now like no longer you know like the duck doesn't haunt him the duck more haunts, haunts uh armand and stuff Mm -hmm. um because usually golems i think as we see at the end of this section are more uh beholden to their creator um which again comes up yeah with talks and the golem uh that follows him around at the end of and at the end of chapter 70 um yeah i don't really have too much to add i do i do really I do really enjoy the duck in general. I'm glad that that she comes back into the narrative. Uh, I'm glad that we get to see Armand again in this in this chapter. I also did like um, when Armand was asked by uh, Luis's husband, uh, "How how is the duck, Peter Bortz?" She told me about it. Luis, Armand almost words back, "The duck is excellent," which <laughs> is just such a stupid little chef joke uh, <laughs> that I love. Got tucked into into there. Yep. So after that, we get the introduction. I think, was it Luke that referred to Cressap as a sort of uh, reminiscent of like the action heroes of, of the late 80s and early 90s? Yeah, I did. I did bring that up, especially because you, you did put it in the, uh, in the Google Doc for, this chap- for these chapters. You did put in the Pension Wikis thing, right? Yeah, That's it's longer. Absolutely. His story is bonkers. Like he, so Pension touches on it, and basically what what Cressap talks about his sort of backstory of, of rampunctiousness and um, lawlessness um, really kind of just scratches the surface. So I, I, I just want to read what the, uh, the pension wiki had on him uh, because it's absolutely wild. Uh, it says Sheriff Samuel Smith of Lancaster County brought a posse to arrest Cressap, but when deputy Knowles Daunt was at the door, Cressap fired through it, wounding Daunt. The sheriff asked Mrs. Cressap for a candle so that they could see to tend Don's wounds, but Mrs. Cressap refused, crying out, uh, quote, crying out that not only was she glad he'd been hit, she would have preferred the wound had been to his heart, end quote. When Daunt died, uh, when Daunt died, Pennsylvania Governor Gordon demanded that Maryland arrest Cressap for murder. Governor Ogle of Maryland responded by naming Cressap a captain in the Maryland militia. Cressup continued his raids, destroying barns and livestock until Sheriff Samuel Smith raised a posse of 24 armed, quote, non-Quakers to arrest him on November 25th, 1736. Unable to get him to surrender, they set his cabin on fire, and when he made a run for the river, they were upon him before he could launch a boat. He shoved one of his captors overboard and cried, Cressup's getting away, and the other deputies pummeled their pier with oars until the ruse was discovered. Removed to Lancaster, a blacksmith was fetched to put him in steel manacles, but Cressup knocked the blacksmith down in one blow. Once constrained in steel, he was hauled off to Philadelphia and paraded through the streets before being imprisoned. His spirit unbroken, he announced, damn it, this is one of the prettiest towns in Maryland. Yeah, that whole thing definitely reminded me of um, 
a few different John Carpenter movies, like the like the Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. I can Snake, see that, yeah, Snake yeah. Plissken. And then I have, yeah. sadly enough, I recently subjected myself to uh, Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> oh, um, man. Yeah, which is like, it's, it's an all-time B-movie. Like, it's one of the weirdest, kind of more, Boy, like, most it. absurd movies. But it did it did remind me, this Crestep character, especially the, the description in the wiki, it reminded me of Ice Cube in that movie of Desolation Williams, the 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 convict that there that keeps mm-hmm. on escaping from prison and keeps on escaping justice, um, and has all these ridiculous stories about how he's like escaped and all this stuff. And yeah, it just reminded me of those characters. I think it kind of for me put me in mind back to the um, the Heinz uh, baby snatching debacle. Just in, in in the chaotic kind of elements of that story and, and the, you know, truth is stranger than fiction kind of idea behind it. Yeah, it's fairly notable that throughout this book, there is some fictional violence, but it's very limited and we haven't seen it yet, really. Mm-hmm. But all of the fictional fantasy stuff is pretty delightful. It's either it's either wondrous or it's you know kind of cosmic horror y. Um, but the the most of the violence is nonfiction. Most of the violence are real events that you can point to historically, and that's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Because there is a a lot of violence in this story, honestly, more than you would expect for what should be a story about two people what cutting down some trees and looking through telescopes basically yeah yeah there's there's a lot of death that happens in this story and it all happened in real life well and it really does speak to the way that there are a lot of kind of characters in i'll say the western u.s mythos like davy crockett and people like that who have these seemingly insane backstories as far as like what they were involved in and what they were doing and um you know, it, it almost seems mythologized, and in some cases it literally is mythologized, but then you have this guy who is wholly not mythologized that I'm sure Pinchon found and just was like, well, that fits with the overall, like, vibe of some of the history of this place. <laughs> so we're going to include it in there because there's been so many elements already where it just it, it seems so insanely Pinchon-esque for it to be included, but it is just real history. Like we had with the whole Captain Shelby and and the baby thing from several chapters mm-hmm. ago, and this is another example of that. To to Will's point of just truth being stranger than fiction, it almost seems like he's collecting things for that, and just being you know very deliberate about including them because of how absurd it is. Yeah, I think it also ties into the the kind of uh, thematic idea of of the uh the evil that that existed on on this land um you know going back historically um and it, it which also you know comes back to the the Norse uh, mythos that we have at the beginning of of chapter 66 and you know i i think that maybe that was a conscious decision on his part to rather than invent these elements of violence and these acts of violence to just showcase actual events that happened and you know, yeah, there we can look back on them, you know, 200 years later and it's, it's pretty funny, but you know, these are still graphic acts of violence that, that people took out upon each other and mm-hmm. are generally unknown by, by most of the American population. And 
to your point about uh, Davy Crockett, I think that's that's kind of a great counterpoint or counterexample of that because when when you have those mythologized mythologized characters like like Davy Crockett and and the other you know defenders of the Alamo or or whatever war veterans or, or war heroes we want to talk about, um, it's almost as though we we accept that violence that level of violence when when you kind of put that tag on it when it's oh well they were a war hero or they were you know defending this or that or the other but when you back it up and just look at here's just people who are crazy killing each other for stupid reasons it's it sort of makes it a a little more uh grounded and a little more real so i think it it kind of hits home a little bit harder Mm and so that's why i think these kind of sections are are as impactful as they are. They're funny as hell. You know, it, there's, there's an inherent hilarity to someone, uh, pushing a police officer essentially out of a boat and then convincing his, you know, other police officers that he's the guy that they're after yeah. so that they beat the shit out of him with some boat oars. Yeah. And thanks for bringing up the Alamo defenders. Cause the, the person who this reminds me the most of is Jim Bowie. 100%. Mm. This is like a, this is a new England Jim Bowie. I, don't I can much see that. More to add there, but it's just that it's interesting to see that Maryland did not make this guy into a a hero, right? Well, then we get into uh, we have our second uh, talking dog, although he technically does not talk in these chapters or in this chapter. But um, I, I found Mason's interaction with uh, with Snake to be pretty um, pretty funny. Just yeah. the idea of of the dog staring back at him, like knowing full well, like I, I understand everything you're saying and I could totally respond to you, but that would just undo everything that I've, you know, had to hide. And, um, I, I thought it was a really fun callback to the, the led from, uh, much, much earlier in the book. Yeah. I, I really like the way that we get this return of Fang Cause he, he is, you know, not a real historical character. And so it would kind of, it would kind of be a shame to leave him behind. And so just like you know, last chapter we got uh, Bodine coming back, we got Fang mm-hmm. at least secondhand. Yeah, and I do love that that Dixon just he he knows instinctually that this dog can talk, which which <laughs> is is sort of confirmed after the long paragraph in which we figure out the dog's reasoning for never revealing that it can talk. Yeah. And then Dixon, I just, it's another one of those moments. There's several moments that I'd love to see filmed in these five chapters, but it's, it just reminds me of like a moment in a comedy sketch or in a movie where you have a character's inner monologue going like for a really, really long time. And then it cuts to the other person and they're just sort of waiting for them to speak, even though there's been this long pause where they're just staring at each other. And then Dixon's response is just like, you can just nod your head and, and indicate what direction he went. That's fine. I don't, I don't need you to speak to me. Well, he, he's talked to dogs who haven't, uh, or and other animals that haven't indicated any power of speech before. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it's, he's just being true to himself. The, uh, the pinch on wiki talks about this ending here. Um, being a reference to two peas in a pod with the, the kid that finds the two peanuts in the, in the shell. I, I, I find that to be, I mean, I, I guess I can see where they're coming from with it, but it just seems like a little bit of a stretch. I think it's just a, 
I don't know. It reads to me like just a kid showing him uh, a cool little magic trick to kind of get him to to stop arguing. Yeah, it, it seems a lot like. Um, it reminds me a lot like of the uh, of, of just the other scenes, particularly in Gravity's Rainbow and Crying of Lot Forty Nine, where like little kids pop up just to tell a joke. Mm-hmm. I think it's just there for the sake of telling this very funny joke. I I love this. I, I'll show you something no one's ever seen before, and no it one ever is. will. <laughs> it cracks me up every time I think about it because it's just it it's really a delightful good. joke. It is pretty funny. I do think it could. I I actually had forgotten that these that kids show up like that in other of his books, but it does remind me of. The general warmth of this book and the fact that Pynchon would have been would have had a kid uh, who is probably below the age of 10 by the time this book came out. I kind of forget how, how old this kid is now. Um, I think he's about your age. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, they probably would have been like, you know, between seven or eight or nine, which is around the age where, you know, kids start telling each other jokes and the kid could have heard this at school and Pynchon just kind of added it or something. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. It does have it does have that kind of warmth to it where it's it does seem to be like um I don't know I I do, I do really love that that sec- that small section as well. It it actually is pretty funny. It's funnier than some of his of his more kind of belabored puns in Gravity's Rainbow and some other books. It's, I feel it's not like... it's not cringe at all, which I feel like he 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 trades in cringe a fair amount with his humor. That's true. I, mm-hmm. I feel like this is exactly the kind of joke, though, that if someone told it to Thomas Pinchon, he'd like lose his mind laughing. <laughs> and yeah. so I wouldn't be shocked at all if potentially this is something Jackson Pinchon just did to his dad at some point. Yeah. yeah. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I'll include that. Yeah, it's very much in the same spirit as uh, for de mill young for henchmen can't be wrong. It's just, you know, <laughs> nowhere near as belabored as you said, Luke. Anything else anyone wanted to go over on uh, 66? Uh, I just just really like the whole fond of rats thing because it is truly hilarious. I don't like I don't I've never heard of dogs eating rats, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is rat tail with navy beans, essentially. <laughs> Sounds um horrible. <laughs> I mean, it's it might not be the worst food that's been mentioned in the book. Let's be fair. The the I think the pizza might be might be worse than this. I don't. I, the pizza is made up of ingredients that I love. So, right, yeah. but that's that's also one of those cases where you know you can. I remember as a kid, you know, combining all the sodas at the soda fountain, thinking like this is going to be the greatest thing ever, and it one hundred percent is not. So sometimes See, even like putting that. the things together. You you really go in for the suicide at the soda fountain, huh, I, Will? I don't anymore, but when I was younger, <laughs> I did genuinely enjoy it. I can't. The, the flavor it of was... a, a mystery dum-dum. Oh, no. No, thank you. No. Yeah, I I did the suicide once at the at a gas station, I think, when I was like 10 or 11, and it was that was the last time I ever did it. But I had <laughs> friends that loved it, or at least they said they did. I don't think I ever did all all of them, but I, I did experiment with different with different mixtures. And you can actually, if you you can find some some good mixtures, it's just mixing yeah, all of yeah. them is mixing all of them is is not not to be recommended in my opinion. Yeah, there's always there's always the one that's going to push it over the edge. Yeah, like uh, and just make Dew. it undrinkable. I was about to say it's always a Mountain Dew. <laughs> mountain Dew does not go with anything else. 
It really doesn't. Which is ironic, given that it was designed initially as a mixer for whiskey. Yeah. Ugh. All right. Anyways, uh, Mountain Dew is not sponsoring this podcast. I just need to point that out. Dr. Pepper, um, though. Dr. Pepper, though, yes. Thank you for your wonderful money. Yeah. All $52. <laughs> One for each flavor. Yep. Uh, all right. So chapter 67. Um, I, I, so I really, I was going to bring this up uh, last week when I, I couldn't be here, but there are several times throughout this book where I get a, um, a very Lynchian, David Lynchian feel um, from certain scenes um, in in last week's episode, it would have been the the opening of chapter sixty one, where they're talking about the mounds, and um, the the connection to the indigenous indigenous Americans. Um, I kind of got the same thing here at the beginning of sixty seven when Mason and Dixon are, are watching the uh, as they watching the Indians slip back into the forest. Um, it just uh, it for me had a very Twin Peaks Black Lodge vibe, especially when when you get to the the end of this the series and you actually see um a couple of different people that go into and out come back out of the black lodge and it's it's setting within a very dense wooded area um so i don't know if if pinchon was watching any twin peaks it seems like the kind of show he would be totally in on um but i just oh, sure. i i get that i get that vibe from certain parts of it and that was one of them yeah and i mean that that paragraph too is also just amazingly written where it just it yeah. says watching an Indian slip back into the forest is like seeing a bird take wing. Each moves vertiginously into an element. Mason, all dead weight cannot enter. The first time he saw it, it made him dizzy. The spot in the brush where the Indian had vanished vibrated as an eddying of no color at all. Contrary wise, watching an Indian emerge is to see a meaningless darkness eddy at length into a face and a face moreover that Mason remembers and I, I, the reason I wanted to read that out is I'm curious if you all have any thoughts on the inclusion where it says a face that Mason remembers. Is it yeah, possible Alex. that, yeah, is it possible that this is just a reference to the fact that Mason helped Indians resettle when he was visiting, um, I think it was New York? Or is it, is there something else that, that Pinchon is getting at by, by saying it that way? I definitely think it could be. It could have a connection to his uh, his work with resettling. Um, I think it also. Uh, I think it maybe is implying a sort of uh, spiritual level that it's impacting it, him on, especially given his um, the the past instances where he's seen you know like Rebecca's ghost and mm. um, other kind of phantasmal spirits. I, I think it's kind of maybe sticking with him in in that sense. Like it's just a. Uh, a sort of image that he's never going to unsee. It's always going to kind of live in his mind. Yeah, that's how I interpreted it. But I'm, I can't. I don't know. I don't. I, I don't think that it's supposed to be the, the people that he advised. I don't know. It's interesting. I'd have to go back and scan through the whole book to see if there was one particular Indian that he he had a conversation with. I don't think so, though. Yeah, not that I could remember. Yeah, it was just an interesting inclusion there at the end that that really, I think, changed the context of a lot of that paragraph. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's ambiguous. It definitely yeah. is ambiguous. This, this section has also got one of, my, one of my 
favorite moments from a standpoint of comedy, um, which actually starts right after that paragraph where uh, it says, he grows apprehensive and soon kickish. I respect them and their unhappy history, but they put me in a state of anxiety unnatural, he complains to the reverend, out of all measure unto the apparition of phantoms. How's that? I see and even touch things that cannot possibly be there, yet they are. Can you give me examples? There may lie a problem, for I am closely sworn not to. Makes advising you difficult, of course. Yes, and some of them are pips too. Shame, really. Whilst you so amiably quiz with me, says the Reverend, Mr. Dixon seems quite content with their company. Who? Young jollification? Drinks with priests? Roysters with pygmies? Aye, I've seen that. Who cares has he, as long as the tobacco and spirits hold out? And withal, throughout, from first sip to empty bottle, he's troubled by no least inkling of sin nor question of fear. He is far too innocent for any of that. No, tis I who am anxious before the advent of these visitors, how strange, who belong so without separation to this country, cryptic and perilous, passing, though never close, as shadowy and serene as the deities of the forest or river. Dot, dot, dot. So, cries Mason, turning desperately to the visitors, you're Indians! <laughs> like... <laughs> That so I I love the paragraph where he's seemingly you know is potentially either expressing real frustration with Dixon or just making jokes about Dixon, and then that turning into more you know very interesting descriptions of the land as this majestic magic strange place. But then the idea that from a mental image standpoint he's whispering this conversation back and forth with the Reverend in front of the delegation of Indians, yeah, and then just suddenly turns around after all of that and pretends like said conversation never happened. And his opening line of, so you're Indians is such a strange way to approach it. It reminded me a lot of the scenes in Parks and Recreation where Ben Wyatt is incredibly nervous around cops. Oh my God, yes. And doesn't know how to, how to talk to them. <laughs> it, it, was, it was another scene in these five chapters that really... I would love to see filmed in some way. I I love it because it's it's truly nonsense. To, yeah. To, just to turn to people and say, "Oh, you are Indians, huh?" Yeah. And it's not like it's one of those things that would clearly be like offensive today, but not because it is racist, simply because it shows such a degree of just incompetence. Mhm. Mm like, just pure incompetence with regard to socialization. He just turns around and is like, person. Yeah. You. You exist. Yep. I was, I'm glad Kate made the uh, the Parks and Rec reference, because I actually, I it made me think of a different character. I, it made me think of uh, Perd Happily, and just seeing him, like, turn to them and be like, so, you're Indians. What's that like? <laughs> That's a fair, that's a fair thing. And, and to Will's point, it is like that sort of lack of socialization or that like lack of understanding of different people mm -hmm. groups continues to this day. So, I mean, as I've said on the podcast, I'm, I'm partially Scandinavian, but the other half of my family's Jewish. And there was a time, I kid you not, when I was younger, where a coworker of mine after learning that I was Jewish, asked me if that's why I didn't have a rewards account for the place that we worked at. So there is just this oh, weird... Wow. <laughs> there is just this weird, like, existence that some people have still to this day where because of their ethnicity or whatever changes inherently the way that, that people start conversations with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, I was in Morocco 
a, a year ago or so. And I was traveling with some folks, and one of the people I was traveling with is she's Jewish. And we we were walking through the the the, the city square in Marrakesh, and this vendor um, wanted to sell something to me. And he walked up and he put his arm around me and he says, "So," and he points to the person I'm traveling with. He says, "So you are Jews," <laughs> and it's it's. You know, it's it's Morocco. It's not. It's yeah, clearly yeah. not anti-Semitic because <laughs> it's it's there are just too many Jewish people there for that to really work. But he he he. That's just how he relates to people. Is he walks up and he just says, "Oh, <laughs> so you are Christian or Jewish or whatever." And it it was incredibly unsettling because there was an ulterior motive there. Um, but it would have been. I imagine a lot more endearing if it had been an innocent case of utter cluelessness like yeah. it is with Mason here. And that that is to be fair, I'm pretty sure the case with my coworker. Um I'm pretty sure I was the only Jewish person she had ever met. Yeah. And so like the way that she phrased it of just like, "Oh, you're Jewish. Is that why you don't have a rewards account?" Like, it, just just clearly came from a place of total, total it's ignorance. Such, yeah. It's such a confident aloofness mm-hmm. that I just can't wrap my head around. But I see it constantly. Like, it's yeah. just one of those things, you know? Absolutely. Um, I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on the the argument that ensues over the the kind of idiom of, of hanging who he, who hangs his dog on six forty nine. I just, I thought that was a really, I don't know, just a bizarre argument to have, but it also was an interesting thing to think about which one is actually more correct. Yeah. This would be one of the, the meandery parts that I, I had made yeah. an allusion to earlier. It is, but I, I found myself stuck on it and just thinking <laughs> about it for stupid reasons. I do like that Cherry Coke um, basically passes out from boredom after listening to it go back and forth for a while. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really know what to make of that other than the humor of the situation, really. Like, it seems uh, s- similar to, like, you know, just general idiom bickering. Like, you know, uh, it's... What, why has it evacuated my brain? Uh... Couldn't care less. Not could care less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel like and and sort of kind of to move to the to the dream section. I I'm super interested in the two paragraphs after the page break where the dream ends. But um, within the context of the dream, it feels like as they are getting closer to this like western border that they're going to run into. And the warrior's path as a whole, it is affecting the environment spiritually to the point where, you know, this this particular reverend who is supposed to be more spiritually in tuned by by way of his job, even though with this character in particular, that's a dubious claim at best. He is being influenced by sort of the the power of that border or the the power of the land that they're now traversing to and it's carrying over into his dreams where he's he's getting a view of the land and almost like potentially a a forewarning or a foretaste of what 
lays beyond that if they were to to actually be able to cross it because he ends it by talking about how he is a he is a seeker of the warrior path he wants to become a pilgrim of the warrior path so it it almost seems to me like it, from a standpoint of cherry coke's character and where we know that he's at now in him recounting the story this may be kind of one of the last stops on his train towards non-religiousness or or just deism in general mm-hmm. and that he's decided that he wants to he wants to become a pilgrim or a seeker after that which has no explanation because that's where some level of of truth or or genuine spirituality may exist and so he's pushing towards that and that's what causes him to kind of potentially consider throwing off the the bounds of the religion that he's he's spent his entire life in that was kind of what i pulled out of his his dream there yeah um, i'm i'm with you on that um and it does lead into some really interesting um parts of of this chapter uh that come after it so uh, do you want to, did you have anything in particular about it you wanted to start with or? Well, I, I figured I would start with just reading it out. It's not too long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where, so there's a page break after his, his, his dream ends and it says, were the Visto to have crossed the warrior path and simply proceeded West. Then upon that cross cut and beaten into the wilderness would have sprung into being not only the metaphysical encounter of ancient savagery with modern science, but with all a civic entity four corners, each with its own distinguishable aims. Sure as Polaris, the first structure to go up would be a tavern. The second, another tavern. Setting up businesses upon the approaches for miles along each great conduit there would presently arrive wagonsmiths, stock auctioneers, gun makers, feed and seed merchants, women who dance in uncommon attire, lanthorns that burn all night, Pavements of strange meddling brought from afar, along with all other heavy cargo that now streams in both directions. The fleets of Conestoga wagons, ceaseless as the fabled herds of buffalo. Further west, sunlit canopies a billow, like choirs sung promises of flight, their unspared wheels rumbling into the soft, airy nightfalls of shadows without edges, though black as city's soot. Festive lanthorns, by contrast, shine in through the glass of the swifter passenger conveyances that go streaking up by above the fields, one after another, all hours of the day and night. Aloft, these carry their wheels with them, barely scuffed by roadway, to be attached whenever needed. Singing and gaiety may be heard passing through the airy gulfs above. Newcomers to the Laybourne life are advised not to look up, lest seized by its proper vertigo, they fall into the sky. For it has happened more than once. Drovers and army officers swear to it as if gravity along the Visto is becoming locally less important than rapture. I think that there's a couple of different readings that you can apply to those two paragraphs. The first, that that there would be some kind of literal thing that would happen where if they crossed the line, if they crossed the warrior path and they continued the Mason and Dixon line west through into the, I'll just say, Edenic land that that they're at the edge of now, that literally all of this stuff would suddenly appear, that that the way time works in this area would cause all of this to happen. I think that rather instead what, what Pinchon is really getting to here is metaphorically their decision to cut into this Edenic paradise will eventually lead to all of these things happening because everything that is mentioned in these paragraphs, if you really go through it, are 
you know, mostly future technologies or future things. Obviously, taverns aren't. And I do right. think it is, it, it is funny that the first thing that appears is a tavern. And yeah. then the second thing that appears is another tavern. But when you get into the list of everything else that he's talking about, you have all of these different things that eventually represent westward expansion in the U.S. 100 years from now. Wagonsmiths creating wagons for people to go uh, take, you know, take a, a land and build a homestead on. You have that. You have stock auctioneers. That could be referencing cattle for ranching, which was something that a lot of these homesteaders did. It could also refer to the eventual establishment of corporations and literally auctioning off stock in said corporations, which would happen about 100 years, 200 years later. Gunmakers, obviously we've already had a lot of that in the book so far, but that would only expand as time went on. Feed and seed merchants, that's what you need in order for homesteading as well. If you're going to be planting crops and selling crops or just planting them for your own consumption. Women who dance in uncommon attire feels like a reference to potentially like bordellos or even potentially, you know, strip dancers. If you were to look even further ahead, um, you then have lanthorns that burn all night. You have electricity. Then you have pavements of strange meddling brought from afar. That's obviously railroads, fleets of Conestoga wagons. That's probably the great westward exodus that would happen, you know, when land was just basically for free and the government was paying people to go and settle there just to expand out the country. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the last, the last chapter um, or the last paragraph is obviously talking about airplanes. So I, I feel like what Pinchon is getting at here is this idea that as soon as you break through that barrier, be it metaphysically or, or, or literally, then the only thing that is going to follow after you is the modernity that is causing as me and Will talked about earlier, this spiritual death through discovery and eventual devastation of the land that you're that you're entering in. And what it really reminded me of a lot, too, from a standpoint of a a comparison to a point in history is when they were building the Transcontinental Railroad. Like mm -hmm. the, the Transcontinental Railroad was cutting through a massive amount of untapped land. And as it did so, there was a there was towns that followed it, where you had not just the railroad being laid, but you had all these people building houses. You had all these people selling, you know, wares and, and selling seeds and crop and food. You had certainly brothels propping up there. You had all of these things continually following the production of the of the Transcontinental Railroad, which was just absolutely laying waste to what Pinchon here is describing as the... Um, what did he call it? The ancient savagery of this untapped land, this sort of verdant landscape. So I think that's really what he's getting at there is, is this idea that as soon as you cross that barrier, there's no going back. All this other crap that leads to the spiritual death that a lot of this section of the book is talking about is inevitably going to, to follow with you. And that's why there is no safety if you do that for Mason Dixon or anybody else. Yeah, it's also... I I. I know, again, we bring this up constantly, but this is, I, I think, a very direct foreshadowing for what's to come in Against the Day, um, because these these two paragraphs, or I guess it's really just, no, it is two paragraphs. Um, you know, everything you just described is is really um, very much laid out in Against the Day, and, and, and th those themes, those ideas, those concepts are what really drives... Uh, a large part of that book 
which, you know, again, after reading this as as detailed as we have been and, and diving into it as much as we are, it just makes me more and more excited for when we eventually do get to against the day. Cause I I'm really looking forward to unpacking everything that's in, uh, in that book after, uh, kind of seeing all the connections to it in here. Um, but that, I, I think you're absolutely hundred percent on the nose with, with what he's getting at with those two paragraphs. And again, that's, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the episode, um, these, these chapters are such a good example of, of his, strengths and and this is a prime example of that is he is packing so much into two paragraphs that take up maybe three quarters of a page altogether when you put it together right um it's and it's it's incredible yeah and it's it's incredible because and this is something i brought up several times over the course of reading this book where you can read over that and you can have a inherently, I guess, spiritual connection to the words on the page in the strangeness of what they describe. And you can maybe come away with it with an understanding that he's talking about airplanes in the second paragraph or that, you know, foreign metals laid on the ground is is, is maybe a, a railroad or something like that. But if you've been reading closely like we have and you've been trying to break down the themes that Pinchon is talking about you understand that that moment only works if you have an understanding of everything he's been doing for the past at least 20 chapters. Mm -hmm. And that the reason why it can be so brief, to your point about it only being like, you know, two thirds of a page, is because it is sort of a capstone to themes that we've been going through for for 20 chapters now. Um, I would be very curious what somebody would come away with after reading those two paragraphs, if they have just been lost or haven't really understood necessarily some of those things that he's been talking about. Cause I, I, mm-hmm. I would be curious how that reads to somebody, but it's, it's a moment where there's just an amazing amount of catharsis packed into those two, those two paragraphs from a thematic perspective, because it's a resolution to so much of what has come before, which is part of what I think makes these five, these five chapters. So excellent. Cause there's, this is just one example of what he does here in that in that cathartic way but there's a lot of it yeah and i'm i'm gonna slightly diverge from your interpretation a bit um because i absolutely see the the westward expansion the 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 rush to the oregon coast and to california and the the plains in the second paragraph but i think there there might be a little bit just because of the specific phrasing of the metaphysical encounter of ancient savagery with modern science, followed by four corners and setting up taverns. Um, I may be misremembering, but as I've mentioned before, i grown up in New Mexico, so I learned quite a bit about Los Alamos labs. Mm-hmm. I believe one of the first buildings they put up was a bar. Um, and, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, and the... With the the ending of the paragraphs, including, you know, name dropping the as if gravity uh, along the vista is becoming locally less important than rapture, um, you know, throughout his throughout Pynchon's books, the atomic bomb sits as kind of a, a, an icon of rapture in this modern modern sense, and you can kind of view this as 
dan dancing around the establishment of Los Alamos and the development of the atomic bomb as the culmination of all of this Western expansion, especially with the the choice of the phrase of women who dance in uncommon attire, um, given the proximity of Los Alamos to the Hopi Nation, where they have those very uh, very publicly accessible uh, dances, ceremonial dances. That's interesting. Okay. I mean, I, I appreciate that other interpretation. Like, I could absolutely see some of that, definitely. Yeah, I don't think it conflicts with yours. I think it's just no. a different slant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, both of those things are representative of kind of the same thing, albeit from different time periods. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What do you all make of the uh, discussion of sky fishing, I guess? <laughs> I thought the comparison between, you know, the gods of the, the indigenous people being just at the horizon versus the gods of, of you know, the, the Europeans being in the sky, pretty entertaining, just from a standpoint of that comparison between the two of them as they talked about it. Um, beyond that, I don't, I, that was another case where I was having a, a bit of a difficult part, like parsing out what, what to get out of it. Yeah, the sky fishing thing, I was, uh, I, that I was wanting to get y'all's thoughts on because that was an interesting, I, I read it and then I stared at it for a while and then I read it again. <laughs> and I just was like, uh, okay. Um, I did, I liked the, the first part on, on 651 after the, the break, um, where the, I think it's sort of a, uh, an, a, a look at how, the the natives viewed nature as 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 a god or you know more had a more um broad definition of of what god was and more i guess a more deistic version of it um rather than a monotheistic you know christian god or abrahamic god that um that mason was referring to um and i, I think that's kind of you know backed up by what dixon mentions about the you know not not something a little more all-encompassing waving an arm to illustrate i i guess i interpreted it as a kind of kind of the way that you did as a way of expressing that we we in modern american culture there's this concept of the personal god mm -hmm. um, the, they, they seem to have a much more literal interpretation of that not only having the you know the whole spirit animal thing, which is what's alluded to with the the protector bear, but also mm -hmm. the the whole idea of you know you go out and you go fishing for the stars, you go out and you meet the stars, the gods come to you, and you interact with them directly rather than assuming that whatever happens is an act of the of the gods. Yeah, I think that that's. I mean, that's certainly. Uh... A complete interpretation that I, I I wasn't really able to come up with personally. Um, so I appreciate the insight there. That definitely makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I think what also threw me was the on six fifty two was the um, the the break that occurs that starts with the the parentheses and parsonical interpolation. Um, because I had to go back. I I had convinced myself at some point that there was a misprint and that the parentheses had closed earlier than it did. And that the one I was seeing later down towards the end of six fifty two was like a different one that I missed. So I also 
did myself a disservice by reading this chapter later at night than I usually do. So it probably had something to do with it. Well, I, I think every time I've read this section, I did the same thing. So, yeah. Uh. It just, it looks weird. It's, it's a very long parenthetical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it is interesting that um, Cherry Coke does seem to kind of continue his story at least a little bit within the parenthetical. Um, it's another kind of, it's kind of like the chapter 353, 54, 55, where it's kind of hard to figure out. Um, what's going on in terms of the frame story and uh, the, the, the main story. I do really like all the stuff about Dixon being able to like uh, fish for like find fish that aren't even native to those put to that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It does kind of, you know, Dixon is kind of repeatedly shown to be a bit more of a kind of, um, you know, he's he's able to he was able to fly when he was a kid. Um, he he is kind of repeatedly shown to have perhaps like some type of supernatural connection or supernatural ability. Um, whereas Mason, who Mason kind of seems more obsessed with the supernatural directly, but Dixon seems to kind of uh, embody it more than be obsessed with it. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I do see the uh, the way that the narrator ship, I guess, starts to become obscure in this chapter. It's kind of the, the beginning of what, as as readers will see as we get into the end here, that Wick's Cherry Coke stops being the the lens through which we read the book, and it's not in a. This is not a a story related thing like it was in the chapters 53 through 55 it's just a more general style thing it just starts to break away and i think it's interesting how it how early it begins that's a that's a good call out because it is it is fairly subtle in how that yeah. how that begins in these chapters well we do also sort like shortly after that get some more of uh, more insight into uh, mason and and the kind of I guess inherent sadness that that is within him when he um, he he looks up at the sky and and as it's described, Mason looked up at his parents' faces turned aside under a great seated sky without a moon, under the unthinkable leagues of their isolation. Um, and it goes on. It's a really uh, beautiful couple of paragraphs there. Um, but I, I I it is it just kind of reminds me of. The, the kind of the never ending loneliness that Mason feels, um, you know, especially when he talks about at the, at the end of those couple of chapters, you know, where he just kind of realizes that he's probably with a bunch of people who would rather see him dead and that the only people who probably really care about, care about him are on the other side of the ocean. Um, and it, it just kind of, you know, it, it, it's a reminder of, of where he came from and, and what he went through in his younger years and how, how that kind of treatment of, of a kid sticks with them for the rest of their life. Well, I think that's super well reflected in the second paragraph there. Cause he starts out, you know, as you mentioned, talking about seeing his parents faces. And then in that second paragraph, it says he thought he knew every step he'd taken between then and today. yet still cannot see 
through the dotting of every last I, and it be known how he has come to be at the present moment, alone in a wilderness surrounded by men who may desire him dead, his kindred the whole ocean away with Dixon, his only sure ally. Are we in danger? He sees little point in not asking. So it isn't, it isn't necessarily even just the fact that he's seeing his, his parents and his own past and how lonely he feels. It's, it's also him kind of having this moment of realization that he's doing to his children the same thing that his father did to mm-hmm. him, which is such a devastating realization for, I would imagine, anyone to have. That if he's, you know, he's still struggling clearly with this idea that he doesn't understand why he's here. He's been struggling with that the entire book of why it is that him and Dixon were saved on the seahorse, who it is that's responsible for sending them out here to draw the line. Now he's had this this ghostly, you know, voice tell him that his his job is kind of complete and that he's not going to be protected if he moves any further, and yet he's still moving further because it's just the the only thing now that he really feels a connection to, and he's understanding that he's he's sort of abandoned his his children and his family, and now he's wishing he hadn't uh, he hadn't done that. And it's it's one of these elements about the book that is so emotionally gripping or or devastating or or depressing or whatever whatever description you want to put on there but it it really does speak to to mason's mental state at this point and and what it is that he is he's going through and Mm -hmm. and how he's growing as a character from where he was earlier in the book speaking of the the character development that we talked about at the top of the show because when he left he didn't seem to have any concerns whatsoever about leaving his kids and that this is just, you know, this is what I got to do. It's my job. It's, it's, it's what's happening. And, and only now has he come to realize the, the danger in that. And it, it's reflected to him by remembering his father and what his father did to him and the way that he was raised. Yeah. So, yeah, just, just a truly beautiful moment of character writing and, and also devastating emotionality and its impact. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that hit me when I, I didn't even finish the first sentence of the fir- of that first paragraph when it mentions that, you know, he looked at his parents' faces, turned aside. So he doesn't even get to see them looking at him. They're like, they're not even, even as projections in the sky that he's kind of creating himself, the only way he can see them is of them not looking at him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, I, I also, I liked Daniel's response to his question of, are we in danger? Um, uh, oh, sure, and ask the Mohawk, cries Daniel, let the topic be danger, he knows all. And let's not omit violence, terror, weaponry. Am I leaving anything out? Sorry, uh, I'm sorry, Mason mumbles. Daniel sniffs and shakes his head. Scalp at one white man, everyone starts assuming things. Yes, of course you're in danger. Your heart beats. You live here, gesturing all around. Danger in every moment. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of see that as the uh, basically the punishment for the so you're Indians thing. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> because you know the "are we in danger" thing is clearly not actually related to the fact that Daniel's Mohawk. Um, it, it it is just a matter of oh, you're warning us this. So is this is are we talking danger or are you just saying you shouldn't do this? Mm-hmm. And, and his response is, "Yeah, yeah, all right, get out of your get your head out of the weirdly racist gutter." Okay, yeah. Also, just as a side note, as I was talking about that, the the temptation to say that Mason is thinking about how he's abandoned my boy. Oh, I was, was thinking of the Daniel Plainview thing too. So high. 
<laughs> Abandon my child. I, I do appreciate that this book, you know, on on paper and the way that people talk about Mason and Dixon kind of sums it up that there isn't a selling point to this book. Like, you kind of have to be a history nerd or a literature mm. nerd to have any interest in reading this novel, unless you just happen to know somebody who highly recommended it. Um, because what are what are you going to summarize it as? Like, oh, it's about, you know, you know that line that those guys <laughs> drew? Yeah. yeah. yeah, they, yeah. The, you know those people who did, like, menial labor? How would you like to read about them doing that menial labor for yeah. 700 pages? Yeah. And that's but what what we do actually have as the plot here is is not that it is Mason learning what fatherhood is, what what it what friendship is, what fatherhood is, what it means to grieve. On well, to to your point about the selling point for this book, which is so true. I mean, yeah. when people when people ask me what my favorite book is and I say Infinite Jest and then their second question is what is it about? <laughs> I, I have the same problem describing that as I would describe this. And like there there seems to almost be an acknowledgement by the characters of the same thing you're talking about, Will. I I wish I could remember the exact wording or the page number or whatever, but I'm pretty sure it's in these five chapters where Mason, I think it's him or or Dixon, questions whether like what the historical importance of this line is going to be. And they say something like, What is it? Are people going to remember the good things about this line? Are people going to, you know, consider the the positive impacts of it? And I, I just remember as I was reading that line, and if it's not in these five chapters, I'm, I'm sorry for bringing up something out of date, but uh, I was like, the answer is no. They're, like, the only reason anybody knows about the Mason and Dixon line is just the Civil War. Yeah. Like, that, that is the only context for this thing even existing there was obviously a purpose for it to be drawn however you know potentially unimportant it was but as everybody now understands it it is just the boundary line for the civil war so yeah in 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 describing this book to people there's really nowhere else to go other than that description of just yeah, that you know that boundary that that was separated the north from the south in the Civil War. It's about the drawing of that. Yeah, I've when I've had to recently uh, explain, like I've I've seen family here and there uh, since we started doing this book, and and you know, and it, it inevitably comes up like, "What are you doing?" And I'll mention the podcast, and uh, they'll ask what we're talking about. I'm like, "Oh yeah, it's this book called Mason and Dixon. What's it about?" And then there's like, it feels like an eternity to me of just staring into the void and trying to think of like. <laughs> I know they don't really care. And whatever I say, it's not going to, you know, they're not going to go find this book and read it. I know my family well enough. I know what they read well enough. Like it's not going to happen. So I just have to, yeah, I have to distill it to the, it's about the guys who did the Mason and Dixon line and, and the, the friendship that formed between them and a lot of other things. And I just kind of leave it at that. And it sucks because I really, if I could find the right kind of person that I could feel like they genuinely want to know what it's about and are willing to listen to me talk for a long time about all of what it's about, like, yeah, I could do that. But when it's, you know, when someone who, and it, you know, I'm not going to knock anybody for reading what they like to read, you know, by all means, you know, this is not a book for everybody. And, you know, I'm not going to try to, you know, shit on people who don't want to read it, but it's just, it is very hard to try and describe a book like this, 
to someone who is just kind of politely asking about it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Which, which really does make me wonder what the conversation between Pinchon and his publisher was. <laughs> Especially um, just, after so long between yeah. Gravity's Rainbow to Vineland to this. Because obviously, if you're Thomas Pinchon, you're not writing query letters. So right. you're you're like at some point he just told either his agent or his publisher like, oh, yeah, I got another book coming out or I got another book that I'm almost done with. Oh, what's it about? Uh, Mason and Dixon or just <laughs> I like I'm very curious what he would have said to that question. Yeah. yeah. Which is it, which can really be applied to a lot of his books. Like you can kind of say that Gravity's Rainbow is about the V2 rocket, but that's not. It's also really so reductive. Case. Yeah. Like. Go ahead, Will. Uh, yeah, you can do that. But the difference is that you can actually say, like, well, it's it's like if you combine the Wasteland with Ulysses, you know, Holy Grail quest for the V2 rocket. <laughs> and you can do that. You can even do it with, like, Vineland. You can say that it's, it's a gender-swap version of the Odyssey that takes form of an 80s-set family drama. Um... There are all all of the other books you can kind of do a, a high concept pitch of, like even against the day, which is his most scattered. You can say, yeah. "Oh, it's about the the way that the modern world came into being, set up World War One, and how that led to the end of the anarchist movement." It's about but, the World's Fair. Yeah, yeah. But with the World's Fair. <laughs> but with this one, it's just kind of like, well, it's about two guys drawing a line yeah just cutting down trees yeah it's a it's a whole lot of meditation on the spirit of america i would i would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear that that pitch from him yeah absolutely which i in to will's line where he just said about the spirit of america i would be very interested if you were to read pinchon's books chronologically because as as Luke brought up, I believe it was last episode, where, to use a reductive phrase, all of Pinchon's books take place in the same universe, even mm -hmm. though that, that that has very different meaning now than it would have, you know, even 20 years ago. Um, if it, Given how much of this book is a meditation or, or, or extended, you know, thought process on America and the spirit of America, how that would potentially coat everything after it if you had read mason and dixon first and then proceeded chronologically through the years of of how each book takes place i, I feel like there yeah. there would really be some major potential for that to to change some of your readings of of everything else if you started here and and kind of held those those themes in mind as you continued forward it would be an interesting project to kind of follow the through line that connects all of them chronologically like that yeah, absolutely. Well, anyways, let's let's talk about giant vegetables. Um, <laughs> so, obviously, this is a, a a kind of big part of of this chapter, uh, the end of this chapter, and it definitely had some very Gulliver's Travels feel vibes to me. The, uh, but also tied to the um, the mythology of of the giants that you know of that were on the land. Um, prior to modern inhabitants and, and how that connects to you know, other things that we've talked about throughout this, the books, most recently with the mounds that were uh, 
uh, that were erected and everything. Um, but I, I, I just found this to be a really fun part of the chapter to read. Um, I didn't really make the connection that, uh, I think, uh, Kate, you were the one that mentioned it earlier about the, um, the journey out of, um, my mind is blanking now. Um, journey out of Egypt and into the journey out of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so that adds a, a whole other layer of context that I did not have when I had initially read it. Yeah, most of my most of my thoughts are observations as far as this portion, and then eventually the the um, mentions of of giant people and giant skeletons and the, the different like castles or forts they inhabited. Really, I I elucidated earlier with the the illusions between that and and the story of entering into the promised land in the Old Testament. But it does it does it it is interesting as I kind of got into I think last week that the the concept of you know, like the giant beaver and different stuff seem to recur in um Pynchon's work. Um in terms of Pynchon's views on civilization and the effects of civilization and the effects of humanity on the natural world. Um it does seem to be kind of a repeated theme for him that humanity and especially, I mean, even in this ch- in these chapters in the beginning, you know, it talks about how the the Vikings kind of ended the concept of, of Vinland the Good uh, by committing murder. Um, and there does seem to be kind of a, a repeated, uh, at least glancing at, if not full on uh, discussion of um, humanity being a negative uh, a net negative and perhaps a very, a very net negative, a very negative net negative on the natural world, um, which is kind of intuitive to, I think people of, of my generation um, in a lot of ways. Cause I mean, but I don't, I don't necessarily think that that would be how people of an older generation might think about it. You know, the environmentalism didn't necessarily arise until the sixties and the seventies. Um, I do think that there was, there are like, you know, the, the roots of the environmental uh, movement go deeper than that, I would say. But um, it is interesting to think about. Uh, I do, I do like the, the whole uh, Old Testament uh, connection with these. I didn't necessarily clock that either. Uh, although now that Kate has said that, I do kind of remember listening to some sermons and reading and reading about, or listening to people talk about and in church settings, the, the journey to the promised land and how the promised land was, you know, so much better than, than where they came from. Um, in terms of outside reading that I could bring in, I did, I have recently been reading, uh, the book of Enoch, the first book of Enoch. Uh, and that does involve, that's, that's an old Testament era, uh, religious text. That's not canonical for, uh christians and i i don't know it's about its status with uh, the jewish community i think it may be viewed as um somewhat canonical or at least somewhat of worth uh but it is referenced in the new testament the book of enoch um but it does talk about uh in in the in an after i think it's in an afterlife setting uh giants who are i think 3000 l's long um or tall and as I talked about at the top of the show, um, the whole thing with hemp is is really funny and interesting. As a former stoner, it's always enjoyable when Pynchon kind of goes on a prolonged 
tangent about hemp. Um, I do think it's he's at least in some ways kind of self-consciously. Uh, I mean, that's not the right way to phrase it, but he's knowingly parodying himself um, and his his reputation. Um, I do think it. I also think it's kind of a nod to who his fans are. Uh, I recently had somebody ask me what what a typical pension fan would would look like would would be like. And it did occur to me that 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 person would probably have some experience with uh, drugs and stuff like that. So, um, and I also went off about conspiracies, but that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, I don't. It's it's a very enjoyable section. Um, it's really fun to kind of picture. Um, the depiction of people living on the inside of the plant uh of the hemp plant does kind of remind me of again i think i brought this up before at least once but ted chiang has a short story or novelette or maybe even novella about the 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 tower of babel uh which i think came out in the early 90s so it is and it was award-winning so it is possible that pension had read it uh but the depiction of the way stations on the tower of babel as the as the group uh, the main character uh, in the story go up the Tower of Babel, the depiction of there being like way stations and like cities in the sky um, as you go up and up and up did kind of remind me of, of the depiction of the hemp plant and how people are living on it. Um, yeah, this is probably, that's probably my favorite uh, in terms of enjoyability. Uh, it's my favorite part of these five chapters. Yeah, I don't have much to add. I think y'all kind of covered all the insights I got out of that section. Uh, but I, I do really, I, I think it's interesting because it's definitely a kind of a, you know, it's supposed to be a sort of foreshadowing of the the, the state and county fair giant vegetable competitions combined yeah. with the, the, the real reports of giant vegetables out West and the, you know, the, like you said, Kate, the references to the land of milk and honey. It's a, it, it's full of those illusions. And then I just like that. It's like he kind of sneaks in the hemp plant in there in the same way that he has um, George Washington passing around a, a pipe full of weed. Mm -hmm. It's just a, just a fun little reminder that, you know, at least for someone like Pynchon, who grew up in a time where weed was supposed to be the least American thing in the world. I mean, heroin gave us jazz, but marijuana is for Mexicans. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's kind of just pointing out, no, there were giant hemp plants, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, and, and only because Luke brought it up. Um, First of all, the Book of First Enoch is very interesting, just from a standpoint of, of the deuterocanonical books that have been written. Um, it is not accepted by, by Jews um, or mainline Christians as being canonical. Um, in, within Judaism, the reason why it's been excluded from the Tanakh pretty much for, you know, ever, has been because of the portions of it that describe uh, angels rebelling against God and that they are capable of sin. Um, that concept within within Judaism is is pretty close to anathema um, and wouldn't be possible. So the fact that that was included there it, it instantly, you know, removes it from what they consider to be to be actual canon. It's 
accepted by a couple of different Orthodox churches that are split off from the mainline Orthodox church, but by and large, it is it is just considered to be uh, part of the deuterocanonical texts. But it's super interesting. If you haven't read it, it's it's just from a standpoint of literature itself, it's quite wild. Yeah, it, it is. It does kind of have to continue this tangent. It does kind of have that Old Testament feel of like the section that I just read. There's a lot of it's like um, like half of it is about like you know like for 30 days there was eight parts of the day were day and. 12 parts were night and then the next month there was nine parts of day and 11 parts of night and like it just goes on like that uh where it's very repetitive and uh you can kind of you know like like similar to sections of the old testament you just kind of can kind of skim it that being said there's some really cool imagery and um it's it's very concerned with the afterlife um in a way that the the like both the old and the new testament don't really necessarily delve into nearly as in depth as the at least the first book of Enoch does. Mm-hmm. All right, well, moving on to chapter sixty-eight, uh, I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on um, the <clears throat> the ferryman, Mister Ice, that uh, that they utilize. Um, I got, and I I could be off base here, but it, I I got. Uh, Charon vibes from the description of of Mr. Ice and his um, ferrying them across, um, especially when it mentions, you know, time stopping while he's telling his story and, and the sort of use of um, having to pay a fee to cross rather than it being coins uh, in the in the Greek mythology there and here. It just seems to be he you have to listen to his story as he uh, takes you across. Um, I didn't find anything on the on the wiki about it, but I definitely got that vibe from him while reading it. Yeah. I certainly picked up that illusion as well. I, well, uh, I found it really interesting. The, on the beginning of page 663, the way that Mason summarizes a bunch of, um, kind of the, the, the methods of English science by saying the finer the scale we work at, the more power we may we dispose. Lancaster County rifle is precise at long range, but because of microscopic refinements in the finish, the rifling, the ease with which it may be held and aimed, but they who control the microscopic control the world, which is something that I, I see as very much in general um, part, part of Thomas Pynchon's writing. I, I think I've mentioned it a little bit, but I, I have a, a framework for reading his books and trying to describe what it is about his writing that I like uh, to people who, who've, you know, read Lot 49 or tried to read Gravity's Rainbow and say, like, oh, I just don't get it. And it comes down to the idea that, for me, when I read Pynchon, he is talking about these tiny little details, and those tiny little details all work together to, uh, to shape a message that's much more precise and therefore powerful feeling at least than than those which try to be more self-contained or try to be easier for the reader the that that they push the reader to try and align their real world understanding with the, the fantasy understanding that he gives as contrast and i see that as an instance of using fine scale to project more power in this case a more compelling story that is a that is a i mean that's a good encapsulation of some of what makes his work pretty amazing yeah um, 
he he certainly is an author that whether you're trying to recommend one of his books or just how he writes it kind of defies description easily and just to add some uh, historical context that I think a lot of our listeners will kind of pick up on uh, just through osmosis, but the whole uh, uh, they control the microscopic, control the world thing. Um, I know it's come up at least once in this book that we didn't we didn't talk about at the time because um, it's, it's just kind of a throwaway line about um, somebody's telescope. It might be Mason's having a a screw that doesn't fit so the whole thing doesn't work um you know this would have been before a uh, factory factories this would have been whenever uh i'm blanking on the term but like managerial oversight like um quality control this is before quality mm-hmm. control was a thing um so you know like people that can people that can consistently and um consistently provide products that are the same size and that are consistent, um, you know, would have been uh, much more highly prized, um, which is just interesting to think about in contrast to modern modern times. And it is something that Pynchon seems to, seems to understand throughout the course of this book that um, stuff like that, you know, like this would have been the time before, like there were standard sizes for different types of screws. This would have been the time whenever, like, you know, pretty much every musket would have been in some way at least slightly different um, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I, I do think that's interesting to to note and um, is is an important kind of historical context for this book. Yeah, and especially that quote. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for bringing in that side of things. Well, moving on to chapter 69. We have the return of, of the duck, this time with the, the wooden companion uh, built for it by Tom Hines, um, which I, I love her initial uh, interactions with, with the wooden duck, where it kind of takes a little bit of time for her to like, make the attempt to um, kind of suss out what's going on by biting its neck and then realizing that it's wood and then kind of commenting on like, yeah, well, it's it's a start. You've got something good going here. It is kind of funny. It brings to mind the idea of like, um, you know, imagining the the android from Ex Machina for some reason getting lonesome and then settling down with a with a sex doll or a dildo. <laughs> it, it's it's really kind of the the vibe that I get from it is just like this weird like, well we have this entirely artificial Frankenstein's monster here, so why wouldn't it have a problem with a slightly less fully functioning, fully artificial, right. thing? But the the duck also has become quite arrogant. I think, um, especially on the on the next page on six sixty eight where, um. She's, um, what, how, who is it that she, I don't think she was, I don't think it mentioned specifically who she's talking to, but she hands a piece of paper, uh, to, she it just says the duck across travelers for miles up and down the line, ever seeking Armand. Um, but anyway, the, the part I wanted to point out was where she says here, producing from some interior recess, a sheaf of notices in print clipped from various newspapers and street bills here. Blah, with the flatteur, the tambourine player. 
In the center, tis moi, moi. Listen to what Voltaire wrote about me, to the Count and Countess d'Argental. Uh, and then the, the translation for the French that I'm not going to butcher is uh, without oh, the voice. Come on. <laughs> nope. <laughs> without the voice of Wamor and the Valkins and Duck, you would have nothing to remind you of the glory of France. Um, and she goes on and, and really kind of shit talks uh, an opera singer and uh, just really, really sells herself as, as you know, I, granted, she's an amazing work of technology. Uh, and then transcended beyond that even, but still pretty arrogant for, uh, for a duck. Yeah. I mean, she's name dropping Voltaire yeah. as having written yeah. about her. Like it's, it's about the most arrogant you can be. That, that, and I mean, that whole like section in particular is pretty absurd because not only do you have this duck dropping a, a reference to Voltaire in the way that it does, but you also have just an entire random aside on playing the oboe yeah. um, that is taking place outside of the narrative. It's just a very weird, weird, random section of, of paragraphs. It really is. And the, the oboe thing um, got me onto what may be the most bizarre connection I've, I've made in reading Penchon, which was to, and I apologize in advance, to Kenny G., uh, because th with the description that uh, is given here of of how the the note was held for twenty minutes is is describing circular breathing, which is a really interesting and fascinating technique uh, that's used. But I did find it interesting because I I remembered when it happened. I was um, I would have been fourteen, thirteen, fourteen. Um, that Kenny G broke the, the world record or rather set the world record for the longest note held. And it was through using circular breathing. Uh, he held it for an E flat for anyone curious, uh, for 45 minutes, 47 seconds. And this actually happened in 1997, uh, after the book was published. So no ways is that a direct reference to that. It's just something that lives in my brain rent free and, and popped up when I read about circular breathing. It's entirely possible, however, that Kenny G read the book and then there you go. to himself, <laughs> I know what to do here. Kenny now, G had been making music for 10 years and he's like, I'm just not doing very well. I just can't figure this saxophone out. And then Thomas Pynchon <laughs> came to his rescue by telling him how to do circular breathing. Yeah. And he learned how to do it in a, in a matter of months. Um, I do want to point out, though, the I've. I had to refresh my memory on it to fi figure out the date that it happened. But the article that I found that, that mentions it, I think it was from life or people magazine referred, refer to him as pop star, Kenny G the saxophone blowhard. <laughs> so Kenny a, G, if you're listening, a, those are not my words. That's, that's someone else's description. As, as a fellow saxophonist who can circular breathe, Kenny G, I would never say something like that about you. <laughs> I, I can respect his talent. I don't care for his music, but, you know, he's he's got his audience. And holding a note for 45 minutes is pretty damn impressive. It is very impressive. I think the longest I ever went was 11, but also within jazz, there's not much of a reason for me to hold a note for longer than yeah. a couple of seconds. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, you are correct that Kenny G does definitely have an have, have an audience. I've never met a member of said audience, but oh, I have. 
I do know you have. I worked at the Barnes and Noble music section for three years, so I oh, sold yeah. a lot of Kenny G records. Yeah, Betcha. especially around Christmas. Yeah, when when people would come in and ask for jazz, and I would start being like, "Oh, like, would you like Art Blakey or or Sonny Rollins, or are you more of like a Coltrane?" <laughs> or like, "Oh no, I was thinking Kenny G." Like, my heart would sink, and I'd be like, "Okay, well, it's that direction." Uh, back to the book. Um, the the section where the duck is is being strangely vulnerable, talking mm-hmm. about the the pain, the emotional torment of being displayed to other people as as a machine rather than as a holistic being. It reminds me a lot, and this is not something I'm terribly familiar with personally, but I know people who've been through some fairly severe medical procedures. And they have all described quite similar feelings um, with regard to the like pre-surgery procedures and the preparations that doctors do, the way that you are treated as like a like a mechanic treats a car. It, it's something that can be really disconcerting for people, and uh, you know I've witnessed people have go going through that and being on the verge of tears for days afterwards just because they can't handle that sense of dehumanization, even though these are doctors. They, they have no ill will. There is not even a, a kind of clinical sterility that, that Vokensan here has. It, it is, these are people talking to other people with respect for them as people. And even with all of that in mind, it is still such a disturbing instance to have yourself laid bare. Mm-hmm. yeah as a side note to that that is very true um as for, as someone who's gone through that in a medical procedure i've only ever needed like surgery or medical intervention one time in my life and it was uh when i almost lost the lower half of my left leg um Jesus. yeah i was playing basketball in germany and I dislocated my knee, tearing three of the ligaments in the process. And oh. uh, the knee was so swollen and messed up from this injury that I that I received that they weren't even sure what had happened when they got me to the hospital in Germany. Um, so they they like did an they initially thought that my leg was just broken because of what had happened uh, to to the lower half of my leg. And they did an x-ray, everything was fine. They then did a, a like a, a CT scan and couldn't come up with anything there. They wanted to do an MRI, but they realized there was just no way for them to actually do an MRI. And so they decided to do a surgical procedure to input a external fixator into my leg, which um, if you don't know what that is, it's it's basically scaffolding is the the best way that I can describe it. Oh wow. Um where they put two pins in the top half of my leg and into my thigh, screwed into the bone, and then they put two pins on the the lower half of my leg, screwed into the bone there, and then they connected it with these metallic rods and hinge points and joints. And they left it there for seven days while my while my knee calmed down enough to um be be scanned and then on the 
last day that they were leaving it in there, they wanted to put me into the MRI, but the scaffolding, the fixator was too big to fit into the MRI. And so a doctor had to come to my uh, room and using a crescent wrench, uh, detach all of this mech, all these mechanisms from my leg. And it is still to this day, one of the worst experiences that I have ever had, uh, mentally. Um, it, it is, it is feeling like you are a bit of a, of a car or like, you know, the, the way that Will described it is, is very accurate. You feel like someone's working on you mechanically. Um, I put a picture of what it looks like in the group chat and it, it is, there is something strange about that feeling, uh, especially when you can feel part of those implements in your body as they're being worked on. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Well, getting back to, uh, the book, we also have the, the first deaths that occur, um, directly in relation to mason and dixon's actual work on the line um this is interesting because i i tried to find some information about this the the book has them listed as william baker and john carpenter um i couldn't find anything in mason's journal about this happening so i don't it, it seems like this may just be something that Pinchon inserted for dramatic effect unless there is some actual history behind this that i'm just not able to find um but yeah, I, I went through the journal and there is no mention that I could find anywhere of, of anyone with those names or any deaths. Yeah, I, I did the same thing and I, I came up with nothing. It seems like potentially just a, a, a thematic representation of the idea that they're no longer safe, like they're no longer yeah. going to be protected. And so almost immediately after that, somebody dies. Especially that it was a tree that killed them, I think yeah. is, is an important part of that. The other thing I couldn't find any information on was the, the swamp cane. Um, I did surface level research for that. Um, the only thing I could find, the only plant I could find that is referred to as swamp cane is in Australia. And it's not, as far as I could tell, it's not uh, used for any nefarious purposes, but I, I couldn't find anything. So I don't know if this is something where it's like a, a sort of archaic or outdated reference or name for a different kind of plant, or if this is again, just something that is creative license. I mean, it's a really interesting way of, uh, you know, of, uh, poisoning people. And it certainly is in line with, um, other methods that are similar to this. Like I know there are, there are tribes in, in the Amazon that will use the, the poison from, uh, poison dart frogs. Um, so, Again, if this is if this is a real thing, I would love to to have someone point out the actual plant that this is and and if it could be used in that manner, I'd think that'd be really interesting to learn. So I'm thinking that it's probably it doesn't seem like anyone uses that term for it. Um, but it seems like it would probably be uh river cane uh or cane break bamboo, which are if you live in North America, you have seen this. It is uh, Arundinaria gigantea. It is a it is a bamboo that springs up in clumps and grows incredibly quickly. Okay, it, it, I know really, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thin, very, very splintery canes of bamboo. Um, and it just, it's from around the region that they are talking about, or it's from a region that's nearby, but not the region that they are currently in. 
it, you know, it seems like it originated from, you know, the, the South, essentially. Mm-hmm. We have, yeah, we have bamboo like this in, in South Texas. Yeah, it's it's all over the place in New Mexico just because people plant it as a as a hedge essentially. Huh. Um, but I, th- I think that's probably what it means because be, at yeah. that point in time it wouldn't have become ubiquitous across the continent. That makes sense. Yeah. Cool. If it is something else, if someone knows definitively, I I would be interested to know. But that definitely that tracks. It could very well be that. Yeah. yeah. The only the only other thing that I had thought of is whether or not cane would be a reference to a type of sugar cane, um, mm. but yeah, I mean Will's Will's explanation makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I've 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 had uh, the cane break bamboo stuck in my skin before, and I can say yeah. it's pretty awful. So chapter seventy opens. Uh, this I I absolutely love the opening of this chapter. It's, um, I, again this goes back to the the discussion on on how the environment is being impacted by all of this um clearing all the the clearing of the forests and the the movement uh westward through america and um i i would read this this opening right now this is actually the quote i picked for um our quotes so i will save it for that um but reading this so i i I started thinking about the the environmentalism that's present in the book and i it got me thinking about other uh other media that was also very focused on on the way that the the treatment of the environment impacts the people who live in that environment um and it got me thinking on another uh story from 1997 although it's a movie uh, princess mononoke which i don't you know, given that they came out in the same year, I doubt it's, it's really either could have been influenced by the other, but um, they, they both deal with kind of similar themes in, it, in its approach to environmentalism and, and how um, man, man's desire to push through and, and essentially conquer the environment um, eventually destroys them and, and sort of acts as a, a primer for the environment to react to it. Um, so I, I, it's interesting that, that 1997 seems to kind of be the, uh, the year of environmental storytelling. Um, Final Fantasy VII was the other one that came up in, in my mind that has a lot of environmental um, themes throughout its story. Also 1997. So I don't know. Something about 97, everyone just wanted to tell stories about how we're ruining the environment, but no one wanted to listen. So... You mean you didn't think of Fern Gully, the last rainforest? Yeah, was that ninety seven? I thought that was earlier. Uh, that's ninety two. <laughs> just... Ah, see, see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess if you were to if you were to go back to that time, I think that was potentially when people were first, on a broader basis, becoming more aware of environmental issues. Like there were certainly people, you know, that that were making it a huge part of their life to to know about and try and expand like the knowledge in the average person about it prior to the nineties. But I feel like that was really when a lot of it came into focus, uh, like the, the, the late nineties, early two thousands when kind of climate change, global warming, all of that sort of started to become a big focus. Deforestation definitely was, was a big part of where it started as well. This chapter also contains probably some of my favorite prose. 
of of all of these of, of really of the whole book. Um, the aside from the opening paragraphs, um, there's another section at the kind of towards the end, starting on page six eighty three. Um, they have lost their race with the first snows. Now they pray they may get all their all the cairns dug and piled before the ground freezes too hard. The snow is already a foot deep. Traces break. A wagon skids back down the slope on its side. The canvas bellying. The animals fearfully trying to fight clear. Tent poles and spades a clatter. The lanthorn against the low lit day falling and smashing upon the ice. Tiny trails of flame borne instantly away. Here are the last cadre out in the in, in, out in the uninterrupted visto from a certain height, oddly verminous upon the pale riband unfolding. Fairly out in the hundred-league current of Shah, where every step is purchased with a further surrender of ignorance as to what they have finished, what they have left at their backs, undone, what, measuring the degree of latitude next spring, they shall be newly complicit in. Though if it takes them much longer to get over the ridge, even if they escape freezing solid, they may, not, may yet have journeyed further into terrestrial knowledge than will allow them to reemerge without bargaining away too much for merely another return, following another excursion, in a cycle belonging to some engine whose higher assembly and indeed purpose they are never, except from infrequent glimpses, quite able to make out. I just, I just love the prose of that section. I just, I find it beautifully written and mm -hmm. just a, another prime example of, of the, um, the capabilities of, of Pinchon as a writer. Yeah. I feel like there are more incredible sections of prose per capita in these five chapters than there have been in any any other section we've gone through really mm -hmm. i do like that we have the return of the discourse of the red coat in these chapters mm. because it it is kind of laid in the background throughout all these things as dixon has been getting a ton of attention for it but nobody's really mentioned it until these last couple chapters where people are just finally coming out and saying hey Hey, we take issue with that jacket you got on, huh? <laughs> there are multiple mentions of it, that's true. Yeah. Which, especially given how close, from a you know timeline perspective, this is to the revolution, uh, it almost feels like somewhat of a, of a portent of what is to come. Yeah, and as, as it's happening as they've reached the, the westernmost point. You know, it's the place where the people who want the least to do with the British army have gone already mm -hmm. and then you know the natives are going to be the people who have experienced the most violence at the hands of the redcoats at this point so it makes sense that they would be the ones to, to first bring up like hey get out of here with that jacket yeah which is it's another that's you know we have sort of the the wrap-up of the duck happening in the previous chapter and now we have just this one small point getting wrapped up almost as well because when he first got the coat uh, he was warned that it wasn't going to be a great yep. idea, and and now that's being brought back up and kind of brought to its its fruition. Yeah, in general, the, these chapters are a lot of tying up loose ends. Yeah, absolutely. Well, another thing that comes up again um, from previous chapters is the mention of eleven days. Um, initially, there's a mention on six seventy nine of the. Uh, for 11 days from the 9th through the 19th of October, they linger beside Dunkard Creek, uh, the Indians keeping their distance, looking to their weapons as to their routes of withdrawal. Um, but then again, on page 682, the snow drives in relentlessly from the 9th to the 19th again, November, 
Another 11-day spin. There is little in the field book suggesting either a passage so difficult that there was no time for nightly entries or events so blameworthy on all sides that they were omitted from the account. I just found it interesting, aside from the fact that it's, it's a, another recurrence of 11 days, that this is, um, I think it's, it's shown in its importance that it, that it is 11 days, and more so in the second instance of it, that there's a sort of feeling of, of missing time um, that's, that's in there. And, and in looking at Mason's journal, um, I mean, it, it definitely backs up those, those two uh, instances. On October 9th in his journal, he says, uh, this day the chief of the Indians, which joined us on the 16th of July, informed us that the above-mentioned warpath was the extent of his commission from the chiefs of the Six Nations, that he should go with us with the line, and that he would proceed not, not proceed one step farther westward, the Indians with us still persisting that they will not go any farther westward with the line. And then on from November 9th to 19th, it just says that they were making marks and nothing else. So, um, you know, not to imply that anything, you know, nefariously spiritual or anything like that was going on. I just find it interesting that this is, you know, we don't really get these mentions of, of another 11 days. Uh, I don't think um, any other times between the direct mentions of the, the 11 days from the calendar and, and here. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you included those sections of his journal, too, because if you go through and read the whole back and forth for months and months and months mm-hmm. um, of them trying to to get this commission set up to even go as far as they went, it's very clear if you're reading in between the lines that this was something the indigenous people did not want to do. Yeah. And and potentially only, you know, assented to the request after a year's worth of dialogue simply because they thought that potentially the alternative might be worse. That it it really does put, you know, cuz cuz like you said there's nothing in the in the journal that says anything spiritual happened or that something nefarious happened, but it does definitely there is a sense of of fear or trepidation that is coded in the back and forth of the letters that that are pasted into mason's journal and and in the difficulty inherent to even getting this to happen let alone how how because they the the chief of the indians shows up and then he's only with the party for only like as as you have here those specific dates and then it's just over just yeah just yeah we're done we're done this is all I've I've done everything I'm willing to do there. So even without making any specific mentions, there is something about it that just feels off. Yeah, and I think that yeah, I think obviously Pinchon picked up on that, and and that's why it was included. Because um, mm-hmm. it's it definitely it's much as as any other time where Mason makes these non um, surveying related. Uh, asides like the mention of the cave from a while back mm-hmm. um it, there, there's always a feeling of like this is important and he's he's writing this for a reason and you do kind of have to sometimes you know kind of read between the lines to see what was going on and and why he would break away from what was essentially just a surveying job to bring this kind of thing up yeah it's, it's fascinating but yeah i didn't upon reading through those sections in the journal i did not initially clock that that those periods are also 11 days. Um, that's interesting. I do appreciate 
as has been continually uh, alluded to throughout this book, the idea that um, that this line party is sort of a an ex not necessarily an extension of the the East India Company, but it is a similar allegory to the modern defense industry because this is a union of military and corporate in interests. Uh, it, anyway. But that we have this kind of prelude to the the use it or lose it spending habits. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Where all of a sudden everything becomes two hundred pounds instead of one hundred yeah. pounds. Yep. Yeah, where <laughs> everything doubles in price and everybody's like, "All right, all right, gotta gotta buy as much as we can before the the budget disappears." And it's not, it's definitely not exclusive to the military industrial complex, but that's the area that Pynchon knows best. And that yeah, is, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Well, not only that, but the way that it mentions that as soon as they started turning back, not only did that happen, but people just started disappearing. Just yeah. like, yeah, whatever, I'm done here. Which <laughs> also, which also certainly does have some degree of, of overlap with how certain contracts in the, in the defense, you know, apparatus have gone where it's like oh yeah we're gonna give you this non-functioning thing or we're just gonna like charge you but and then just i'm not gonna see this through to completion we're just i'm just done here yeah yeah definitely that f-35 project or whatever it is that's costed the country like a trillion dollars or something with with literally no yeah accountability or actual end result it's very 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 uh it's, they're, they're a sacred industry you can't be saying these things they know this might be the doing. last episode we do it's just the last episode i'm on <laughs> no they'll 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 force us to replace you with like a sound alike but oh uh, yeah i mean listen close enough you'll know there's probably enough audio at this point over the last like 28 episodes or however many we've done to to accurately remodel my my voice they can they can ai that yeah it's, yeah we shouldn't but, challenge them to do that unless this isn't my real voice Ooh. <laughs> uh anything else on chapter 70 i did want to point out that uh talks is apparently i think the pension wiki gets into this um but he's apparently a non Oh, we'd before maybe will has but uh i just wanted to point that out that uh all the sections we get from the pennsylvania ad are apparently kind of a response to the the poet main character in the salt weed back um uh for that in that book in the world of that book called the marylandiad um i think this might be the last time we we i I don't remember if we've seen talks before, but I, I am pretty sure this is the last time we see him. Um, I don't, yeah, I find that character pretty interesting as a poet myself. Um, yeah, I, I, I like the ending to this section with, with his appearance and stuff about him owning the golem and him running off to like a, an all white carriage and stuff. It's fun to picture. Mm -hmm. um, it does seem to kind of link him to some type of divine connection, the all white stuff or some type of uh, supernatural thing where maybe he's going to heaven or he's uh, ascending in some way. Yeah, that actually brings up a good question. Did anyone have any thoughts on 
the arguments about whether or not the golem is is real and all of the stuff that gets brought up with his character towards the end of this chapter i mean it's certainly it it has a fantastical element to it to begin with so it it's hard to say yeah i'm trying there's a specific quote that i'm thinking of here so yeah last time i read this section um i don't know why it, they're not coming back to me i had some thoughts as in like like two years ago when I read this book last, it, there's this sense I have. I think I saw talks as some sort of weird microscopic self-insert. Hmm. Um, which is funny because the book is full of other self-inserts yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i i saw talks as something like this is a this is an author who who, who escaped into the woods into you know and not anonymity and you know he talks about this giant thing that everybody else is ignoring or that every or that everybody else recognizes and also views as wonderful, but then later on people are starting to wonder if it's really important. I don't know. Okay, I found it here. Mason and Dixon looking again at the rabbi of Prague, inquiring in particular after Timothy talks. He is mad. Countrymen are soon explaining to them what he now styles his golem does not exist. Mister Talks looks on with a tolerant smile. Because he heard it speak the same words as God out of the burning bush, Tim nowadays imagines himself Moses with a commission from God to bring another people out of captivity. Out of the city, declares Timothy Tox, where affliction ever reigns, must the golem deliver them over Shilkill out of that American Egypt. You don't want to be going into Philadelphia, lad, they warn him, carrying folk off and so forth, nor particularly confiding in too many of those sits about the golem. Now for many of them, the old knowledge is an evil they'll be content to execute you for as lock ye away. I am quite undiluted, the forest dithrimbist replies. As to the Philadelphians, before all the lawyers, come, come, does no one recall? Tis only by the grace that some call luck that anyone can quite escape the muck, as o'er amongst wax and wings and printer's ink seepeth the creeping lie suborners stink. And then he goes on to, to summon, like, so there there seems to be something in those, in those quotations that Pinchon is driving at that I couldn't quite parse out myself well this whole section reminds me a bit of the the meditations on cityness in um mm-hmm. in re- really the california novels mostly there may be something into um the golem as a sort of as a sort of spirit of america mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. wilderness in general i don't know it's interesting there's there is something about this section prior to the the you know carriage at the end that I feel like I'm just not that I feel like there has to be something more there that that we're kind of circling around and I don't I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's a difficult thing. If any listeners have have uh, an interpretation of it, please share. I I would love to see what other people are are taking away from that section. Shall we move on to funny parts? Um, for me, I have, um, this goes back to, uh, the, the Cressap part of the story. Um, and it's just a a brief little paragraph. He says, 
Our house burned down, one of us murdered with his hands in the air, father and son are exchanging looks. The rest dispersed into the woods. They took me back across Susquehanna to stand trial in that dismal, let me put it this way, if America was a person and it sat down, Lancaster Town would be plunged into a darkness. Damn it, that was, was going to be my, my choice. I had that all ready to go. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sorry. There's a lot, though. I, I had a lot of things highlighted in these chapters. There was some pretty funny stuff that took place here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my, my choices were the duck joke, which we talked about. The, um, I mentioned the, the fact that the first structure would be a tavern, and then the second yep. is just another yep. tavern. But uh, definitely my, my most favorite funny point was, was Mason's complete lack of understanding in, in going from whispering to Cherry Coke to, so! <laughs> <laughs> uh, my second choice would probably just be the, the, part, about, the part about the hemp plant and all, all of that old, that old small section. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm trying to find this one thing. One of the Mohawk's insults. Yeah, okay. I think I found it here. Um, when after Mason talks about the how the fineness of engineering can lend power to weapons, the response is, "Listen to me." Defecates with pigeons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Long before any of you came here, we dreamed of you. And the, you know the the rest of the paragraph isn't very funny. It's more insightful. And, mysterious but just the the choice to just call him defecates with pigeons <laughs> which has to be some kind of reference to the way that he turned around and greeted them yeah or something yeah. It, it it is just ridiculous because yeah no that's hey shithead which is it's exactly <laughs> the thing that Mason basically deserves at this point because yeah, yeah. no these guys oh, understand yeah. they make arrows they know how making anything works they know that like <laughs> you line up two things at a further distance you can project a more accurate line that's not the thing that they don't understand they're saying why do you put so much personal importance into these scales <laughs> and all mason can do is dryly explain how tolerance and precision works yeah he's he's really asking for a, a spiritual answer and mason is just not giving it to him yeah I did also like, speaking of Mason uh, kind of being the, the butt of the joke, on page 666, um, later that night, and as he hopes, out of the duck's hearing, Mason says, I've been thinking about that chicken today. Aye, I know it gets lonely out here, though. Aren't they said to be moody? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Let's go into quotes, and um, I'm, I'm curious to see what everyone else picked here um my quotation is from 635 um it's just that that portion where it says one day having failed to fall asleep and as they often did continue to sleep through the nightly death of the sun up instead faces vermilioned amid the clank and bustle of preparations for the evening mess mason and dixon hear the voice stirring the tops of trees in a black swift smear down the mountainside and into the shade, more to plead than to pronounce. You are gone too far from the postmarked west. It is there, neither surveyor may take any comfort in suspicions of joint insanity. Thank ye, Mason mutters back to it, as if we didn't already know. Um, I mean, there's there's some beautiful description of a of a sunset, certainly, and especially as it relates to 
kind of their preparations for evening dinner and all of that as a as a group, but also just what that that line you're gone too far from the postmarked West means in in the overall you know discussion of what we've been talking about the over the course of this entire episode. Um, the, it's so suffused with meaning and in a way that that brings a lot of the thematic elements of the novel to to a point of conclusion. Um, it, it may not be the the most impressive necessarily from a writing standpoint, but it, it stood out to me as as being the most important to the themes of the novel. Uh, my quote is uh, related to that one, so I'll go next. Uh, mine's on 634. The season hanging just over the horizon, spreading lightless mantle and pale fingers across the sky. The great ghost of the woods has been whispering to them. The reason suggests the wind. No, no more, no further. Such are the words the surveyors have been able to bring to their waking bankside from this great fluvial whisper. Uh, so the word fluvial means it's related to a river, actually. I had to look that up. Um, but it did kind of remind me of a few different things. It's it's a really interesting uh, concept, you know, the the wilderness whispering to them. As a fan of uh, the TV show Yellow Jackets, definitely kind of reminded me of, of some aspects of that show. And um, it also reminded me of one of my favorite um, Jack Kerouac anecdotes, uh, which I don't have that many in my brain, but I've, I've read some pretty good ones. He was kind of known for creating good anecdotes. Um, but I think in the in the in his in his novel Big Sur, he describes sitting on the side of the sitting on on a beach in Big Sur, and um, descri- like he he writes down like the the voice of the ocean, the the noises the ocean are making is making. Um, I think it's included in that novel, like his um, his scribbles about uh, the noises of the ocean and him trying to use letters uh, as in like you know like words uh well, they're not words uh but language to um to describe and it's not really to describe it is to capture the the sound of the ocean somehow which is i think maybe harder than most people would think it would be um considering you know it's the english language and the way that we pronounce letters and, and phrases and words um is not super you know, like onomatopoeia is not is not the easiest thing to accomplish. I guess is what I'm getting at. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a great section. I I had that one highlighted as well. Um, mine as I as I mentioned is the um the opening of of chapter seventy. Um, at the moment of the interdiction, when their eyes at length meet, what they believe they once found aboard the seahorse fails this time to appear. It is not a faltering on either man's part or the mistaken impression of one or any moral lapse. Tis a difference of opinion. Mason, stubborn, wishes to go on, believing that with Hugh Crawford's help, he may negotiate for another ten minutes of arc. But Mason, they don't know what that is. We'll show them. Let them look through the instruments or something, or they can watch us writing. They don't want any of that. They want to know how to stop this great invisible thing that comes crawling straight on over their lands, devouring all in its path. Well, of course it's a living creature. "'Tis all of us, temporarily collected into an entity whose labors none could do alone. A tree-slaughtering animal with no purpose but to continue creating forever a perfect corridor over the land, its teeth of steel, its jaws axemen, its life's blood disbursement. And what of its intentions beyond killing everything due west of it? Do you know? I don't either. Then, just tidying these thoughts up a bit, you're saying this line has a will to proceed westward. What else are these people supposed to believe?' 
haven't we been saying within 100 blades all, all the day long, this is how far into your land we may strike, this is what we may claim to westward? As you see what we may do to trees and how little we care, imagine how little we care for Indians and what we're prepared to do to you. That influence you have felt along our line, that current strong as a river's, we command it. We, make, we might make through your nations an avenue of ruin, terrible as a path of a whirlwind. But those are threats we do not make, but might as well make, as the Indians wish, we must go no further. No, we must go on. Uh, I just, that I think speaks to so much of, of the environmental aspect of this book and what, you know, the, the, with, with, with progress and with expansion comes destruction. And I, I, I think tends to get overlooked the impact that that destruction has and has continued to have, um, over the hundreds of years since that line was, was mapped out. And it's, it, it kind of, I guess, makes me think, you know, what would have, how would have been different if that expansion hadn't happened, if we had kept on with a more, uh, a higher reverence for nature, um, in our, in our growth as a society and a civilization, you know, what, what might that have looked like? But we chose to continue going West and to clear out and to destroy in, in the name of building an empire. Yeah. That, that quote was definitely up there amongst my favorites from this, from this section, exactly for the reasons that you, you just described. Yeah. If you, if you hadn't um, mentioned earlier that you were choosing it, I, I might've gone with that. I could have stolen so from two people. I could have stolen <laughs> from two people. Um, well, my, mine was not taken. And I'm going to return to my, my standard, my preference for the nature writing. Um, with um, the beginning of 656. West of Cheat, they discover Indian corn growing higher than a weathercock upon a barn. What they take for a natural hill proves but the pedestal for a gigantic squash vine thicker than an ancient tree trunk, whose flowers they can jump into in the mornings and bathe in, sometimes never touching the bottom. Single tomatoes tower high as churches and shiny enough to see yourself in, warped spherical, red as blood, with the whole great sweep of forest and river and visto curving away behind, and the smell, apothecarial, ustral, musk-heavy, one must bring along a bladder filled with fresh air, and now and then inhale from it, if one does not wish to swoon clean away in these gardens titanic. It's, it's just such a beautifully phrased uh, description of some big old plants. Yeah, it absolutely is. I, I, I love the slight allusion to the Wizard of Oz, perhaps, mm -hmm. with the swooning away. Let's um, move on to our most pinch-on part. I feel like it's hard to pick just like a quote or a segment of these chapters that is, that's the most pinch-on part. I feel like mm -hmm. overall the entire, you know, reading of these chapters as being about environmentalism versus the expansion of society and the, the westward movement 100 years later and all of that. And the, the sort of end result of it it stands out as being the the most pinch on part for me i guess if you were to to try and encapsulate that it would just be those two paragraphs after the reverend's dream 
and and how that sort of describes the clash between the the verdant green landscape of how it used to be versus what it will become i would say that would probably be the the closest thing is that i could come to of picking just a section to describe it yeah yeah i think kind of like with chapters 51 through 55 this is an instance where i think the whole of of these chapters is the most pinch on part it's Mm -hmm. it's really a a distillation of everything that makes him him as a writer Mm -hmm. um whether it's his humor or his uh ability to write these um beautiful bits of prose about huge vegetables or to uh you know alluticate on on how uh, we have basically carved our own destiny out as we carved out the the forests of America. Um, it's it's just all here, and I think uh, it's absolutely fair to just say all of this. This these whole five chapters are the most pinch on part of these five chapters. My choice would probably just be the part with the giant. But... I've already kind of gone. Yeah, that seems like a fair choice. Yeah. <laughs> I I think I might have to go with um probably just the whole idea of taking the chicken on the line thing and transposing it to the duck. The, the whole idea there of just like yeah, you know this kind of possibly true pseudoscientific thing where if you stick a chicken on a line it won't leave it. Mm-hmm. Well, what if we did that with a mechanical duck <laughs> and a really long line? Yeah, it, it's just, it's, it is absurd in a very Pinchonian way. Well, we got our uh, weekly email from Brett um, going over uh, a few things from, from last week's episode. Um, Kate, did you want to read that? Sure. Hey, all. Always enjoy your discussion. This week was another great batch of insights and interpretations, and I share the sense of connection to these sections. They're a lot of fun, and I don't have a lot to add in terms of the history or context. The discussion of the role of the Vinland saga was especially cool and did an excellent job of covering the heavier historical stuff in this batch of readings, and I love the analysis of ancient mounds and the discussion of the birth of Jesus as well. So, just two fun little notes, both about the awesome tree-felling race. 1. Pinchon sets the tree-felling race on August 5th. Mason's journal notes a solar eclipse on that day. I think that's a cool moment where you can see the possible inspiration for episode 63 in the journal, even as Pinchon changes the core detail and adds a whole narrative arc around it. At 618, line 19, we get the mention of the Gunpowder and Biter Bit Creek. This is around where the tree felling race takes place. The Gunpowder is real. It's the Gunpowder River near the Mason-Dixon line. As far as I can tell, though, Biter Bit Creek is fictional. Seems like a classic Pinchon joke. Stig's axe bit versus the wear beaver's bite. There's also the eclipse ending and the way the biter gets bit by the disappearance of the moon during the eclipse. Small little joke, but one that I liked. Looking forward to next week. Great work again. Thank you, as always, Brett, for sending those in. Um, that's really cool that, that one of those creeks is, is definitely real, uh, especially given that the other one is, is just a completely ridiculous name. The idea mm-hmm. that you're you're kind of tying the two of them together almost makes the reader potentially think that both of them are real. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just another example of how you know I I I really appreciate you sending us Mason's journal because I've been reading it 
in conjunction with the actual chapters we've been going along because obviously Pinchon yeah includes like dates of when things are happening and it's just very interesting to see clearly how much is in there that inspires what ends up in the book um and and the inclusion of the fact that there is a solar eclipse that day you know that's just a perfect example of, of how he takes this one thing and somehow manages to build out this whole insane chapter out of it yeah that's it's added such an interesting layer to uh reading the the these last several sections um that i i wish i thought to have it available when i started it because i i it really does you know as, as you mentioned kate it, it really is interesting to line up where in the book we are with where that is in mason's journal and, and see even if it's like a single sentence how Pinchon can take that and extrapolate out this whole other thing from it. Um, and it, it just kind of, it, it has me in the back of my mind thinking about him, you know, reading this journal and, and kind of mapping out how he can plot out this book based on the events of the journal. We also got uh, a couple of reviews and well, a review and a mention on, on Twitter. Um, Will, if you'd like to read those. Sure. Um, from at book lover on Twitter cannot believe, given the number of times I've read it and the amount of secondary criticism I've read about it, that until listening to At Pension Pod, I never twigged that in the first chapter of The Crying of Lot 49, Mucho is crying about a lot. And yeah, I, I think that the number of puns in that book <laughs> is it really flies over most people's head in a, in a funny way, because it's clearly there. It's, it's all obvious that if you, if you like describe it to somebody else, people will catch the puns. But if you're just reading the book, your brain doesn't want to think about a story as a pun really. Yeah. Yeah. And then from, uh, a review on Apple podcasts from username jumped. So glad to have another Thomas Pynchon podcast, rest in peace, Pynchon in public. Mason and Dixon is my favorite of Pynchon's novels, and the most underexplored. They examine its nooks and crannies here in the convivial man manner popular to the podcast format. Thank you, Vineland Next, I hope, and uh, keep on hoping. <laughs> At some point it will happen. It has to. This Statistically, we will get to all of his books at some point. Now, it might be 20 years, but... It could be. It'll Who knows? happen. Maybe 17 <laughs> to match the release yeah so yeah thank you for for that review uh and thank you for the the mention on twitter we really appreciate it um and we really appreciate all of you who are listening um and we're glad that you have stuck with us for uh it's been four months almost to the day that we released our first episode about this book and we are rapidly approaching the end we're, we're less than 100 pages away we have um literally two more episodes about the the book itself and we're going to have uh brett back on uh to discuss uh part two once we finish that up and so we're looking forward to uh bringing him back and, and getting him to answer more of our uh questions on that so um just as a as a kind of note ahead if if any listeners have any questions that they want to uh put to brett uh, please feel free to send them to us. You can email us, uh, send them on Twitter. All our social media links are in the show notes. Um, so we'll be back next week to talk chapters 71 through 73, the last part of part two. Uh, and 
we will see you all then. Thanks so much for listening. See ya. Bye. Oh, uh, Will, yeah, I ordered... Sorry, what was that? Uh, I was just going to say, after our, after our further conversation last week, I did order the ice shirt. Um, oh, yeah. So I'm going to be Mine came in that. the other Maybe day. I need to join this little reading group. Reading group. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people... Get on board. I've, I've been trying to sell this book to everybody um, because it, it's one of the more impressive books I've ever read. Just the weird terms. thing about it that I noticed when I was um, when I looked it up on Storygraph is so it's part of the the Seven Dreams series that he has, but there's no book four. Yeah, he hasn't released it yet. Okay. He he's he sketched out the the plot back in back when he wrote the ice shirt, and he's been filling it in piece by piece out of okay. order. And they get significantly bigger. Uh, I've noticed in the other volumes. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm not opposed to. I love a good book, a big book, but... Um, yeah, I think once I finish um, Underworld um, and Abaddon's Gate, I think Ice Shirt's going to be my next. I uh, next I listened to Roadside Picnic, Will. Yeah, I liked it. I liked oh, it to get him out. Um I definitely, because the beginning of it, I didn't, I didn't necessarily understand what you meant by it being so boozy. But by the end, I was like, yeah, um, I definitely get it now. Um, it's surprisingly uh, like hard boiled and like kind of noirish. I was surprised by that. Yeah, I was looking for a good, like hard boiled noir kind of book the other yesterday when I was at the. At the bookstore. Um, I picked up uh, from our library. Um, was it, is it Paul Astor's New York trilogy? That is Paul Astor, yeah. Okay. That one's supposed to be pretty good. I haven't read that. Um, they are pretty good. I read those a couple of years ago. And then yesterday, I almost bought Chester Himes's uh, Rage in Harlem. But I'm, it was just the one book, and I would rather get like a, if there, if there exists such a thing, like an omnibus of that because i think it was a series yeah that that's one that i keep meaning to read next but keep getting distracted by rereading other things yeah it's been on my moment list for a while but i don't know why yesterday i just had a really weird urge to read something noiry and i i could go back and reread you know chandler or hammett uh any anytime i love those books but i wanted something uh, like newer, but I don't think that's a genre that really gets written much anymore. At least not well. Not so much. Yeah, yeah. In, in anything other than pastiche or like parody, absolutely yeah. not. It, a lot of a lot of modern noir comes off pretty. I, really? I hate the overuse of the word, but cringy. Yeah. 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 Did you ever um, read the? Philip Marlowe novel that wasn't published by Chandler. No. Yeah. So there was a posthumous one that he was like halfway through when he died and they, they finished that and published it after he died. But then I want to say in like 2013 
or something like that, there was another Philip Marlowe novel published um, by a guy writing underneath the pseudonym Benjamin Black. Um, it's called The Black-Eyed Blonde. I actually found it to be quite good. Um, huh. Which, it's it's just a continuation of the same character, just a little bit further in time. Mm-hmm. And the way that the... Um, the way that the writer describes like West Hollywood in particular, which is where a lot of the action of the book takes place, seems to be almost sort of trying to illustrate how West Hollywood developed into what it is now. If I remember correctly, um, I read this book once a very, very long time ago, um, like around the time that it was published. But I, yeah, I found it to be really really good and it didn't it didn't feel like they were just trying to capitalize on name recognition of the character or whatever it actually stood out yeah. as being a pretty good pretty good novel on its own um the the person whose pseudonym is benjamin black is actually john banville um who's won a, a man booker prize so he's he knows what he's doing hmm. i did find i need to go back to the to the library and pick it up. I uh, a year or maybe two years ago, I found a a an anthology of of old Black Mask um, detective stories at our library, and it was they they published it kind of in the same way that it would have been published in the old uh, serials, where it's the um, kind of a newspaper layout where it had the uh, columned. Um, uh, my brain's blanking right now. But anyway, they uh, there were some really cool stories in there. They're, they had some Chandler and Hammett and, and a bunch of other um, big names in there. And I think they rebranded that magazine later in like the 80s or something like that and started including some newer writers like um, James Elroy. I, he's one of the ones, I, some of his stuff is pretty good. I think he's probably the, the last author, the most recent author I've read that does hard-boiled pretty well. But he can also get kind of cringy and obnoxious at times. Yeah, I need to do a lot more reading of those things. I, I read a lot of those style of books when I was very young, probably too young, but uh, <laughs> it's been a long time since I, I read any really straight, straightforward noir, and I need to change that. I mean, Hammett and, and Chandler are the go-tos. Um, yeah, yeah. And obviously the, the adaptations of their stuff has been pretty good. Yeah. Um, the the only thing remotely hard boiled I've read recently is um I, I started I found the I found a non George Goodall version of Gravity's Rainbow in audiobook. And I spent like fourteen hours across two days just listening to that while doing like puzzles. Mm. Um and that was uh way more than I was expecting. Uh and also, being read aloud by an American makes that book much feel much more hard-boiled and noirish than it does when I read it, at least. Sounds yeah. like an interesting experience, yeah. I wish... It's a, it's a genre that I wish had held up to, to today, um, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad it didn't, because... I, well, I think I guess it did, and it, it it 
for the reasons I didn't want it to, because it's it's become a sort of parody there of itself. Is, there is Finch by Vandermeer, which is pretty hard, hard boiled. Finch yeah. was really good. That's true. Um, Glenn Cook is supposed to be pretty good as far as like fantasy, blending fantasy and and noir. I need to read some of his stuff. Did um, you ever read Night of the Hunter? Mm, that sounds familiar, but I don't. I can't say I did. I have it's, to look it up and see. Yeah, it's by Davis Grubb. Um, it was it was probably more famously at adapt adapted into um, a Charles Lawton noir classic. Um, Robert Mitchum played one of the main okay. characters in it. I may have seen it then. I, I watched. Yeah. I went through a long period of watching film noir, and Mitchum. I watched a lot of his stuff. Yeah, then you you've almost definitely seen the the movie, but um, it is based on a book that was actually the finalist for the National Book Award in 1955. Like the oh. the book the book itself is really really good. I will say for as far as a movie that I've seen that does a good job of of capturing the kind of noir aspect, Brick was really good. Um, yeah, Ryan Johnson's first movie. I, I saw that when that it came film. out. I was in London when it came out and I would see posters for it all over the place. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I want to watch it. And I absolutely love that movie. It's, the, the music is so good. The music is so good. And the decision to like turn the noir genre on its head by yeah. setting Making it, it in, a, in, a, in a high school, but changing none of the dialogue. So it's, it's still in it, that like oh 1940s yeah. pattern as if they're older, like such so good. I love yeah. that movie. Yeah. And it, there's a scene in that movie that always sticks with me because it was it's so smart and you just never think of it happening. But the way it was done, the sound editing and everything, when when Brendan is running, like someone's chasing him and he's he turns a corner and takes his shoes off so that oh, because yeah. it, it very clearly is making like heavy mention of like the thudding of footsteps. Yeah. And so he takes his shoes off so the guy can't follow him anymore and trips. Oh, my God. I love that. I love that scene so much. Yeah, that movie's so good. I I found a DVD of it at Pawn America and bought it on a whim, and it then oh, really? proceeded. Yeah, and then it proceeded to be like one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I just I picked up a new copy of it at uh, for a dollar at my library. So, yeah, it's so good. Uh, that that movie was also very heavily inspired by Cowboy Bebop. In case you didn't know, oh my god, I love Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, I knew you were super into it. Like the the whole way that Joseph Gordon Levitt's character walks and like mm -hmm. his very his, Spike Spiegel. Yeah. yeah, his character presentation is very deliberately based on Spike Spiegel. That's an, and that that's the music for that show is so good too. Yep, the seatbelts know how to do a track. My daughter and I are home right now. My wife took. Uh, my son out for errands and stuff. So we ordered a pizza and when the guy brought it in, I, it was like noon and I told him have a good night. And I immediately was like, I have to close the door. Cause I just said something stupid. And I find myself doing that all the time where I just say the wrong thing. And then I just get like, I don't know. It sticks in my head for the rest of the day. See, I disagree. I don't think that is stupid. I feel like you're telling him have a good rest of your day, which what is following currently is That's night. true. That's a good way to, to look at it. Yeah. It's certainly not the worst thing I've said to someone. I, when I was like, I think I was a freshman in high school. I met one of my dad's friends. My dad does construction and I used to work for him cleaning up job sites and somebody, I think the guy that owned the building that was being built had come by and was talking to my dad and my dad introduced me to him. And as the guy was leaving, he said, it was nice to meet you. And my response was, I know. 
<laughs> That's like, such a good response. He looked at me and I was like, <laughs> in my head, I'm like, I'm a fucking 16 year old. Like, who, who am I? Why did I say that? And it was just, my dad just did not let me live it down for a pretty good while. Oh, right man. so. That is that is the level of confidence that most people should aspire towards. I it, the funny thing is I've never had that level of confidence. Yeah. It was just that's just what came out of my mouth. It's nice to meet you. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Trust I know me. how cool I am. <laughs> hey, like twenty years from now, I'm gonna be on a podcast. You're gonna discussing yeah. obscure literature. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll know it was good to meet me. Oh yeah. <laughs>